Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Wildo's triumphant return to the world of parahumans with Ward. I'm your host and creepy horror baby-themed cape, Matt Freeman, and this is my squelching offspring, Scott Daly. Wake up, sweetie. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, there was something in my throat. Um, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Throwing a little temper tantrum. Um, as you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into the into Wildbo's world of trauma, guilt, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this wonderful book. This week on the podcast, we resume our game of check of catch up, trying to catch up to the chapter that is currently released live, so we can follow on live. But we're we're still playing that catch up game, and this week we're going to tackle all of Arc One. Daybreak, the first arc of Ward. And Matt, it is a big one. There's a yep. lot. There's a lot that goes on in this arc. Yep, quite a catch-up game we're playing here. Uh, yeah, th- this is this strikes me as a classic um, positioning the protagonist into a, a, a crisis situation um, um, introduction to a story. Is, th- do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. There, there is there is very much that um, that we. we are introduced to our protagonist. We follow our protagonist through what is a relatively normal life. And then we kind of get the call to action, the event that triggers <laughs> things, uh, things to, to begin and, and things to change. And, and we, we lay out who our character is and, and the, the issues they have. We lay out their wants and their needs and we, the, the conflict of the overall world around it. And it is, it's very, um, in a in a structural storytelling sense, it is it is very in line with how you start a story. Well, yeah, yeah, and we we don't really know by the end of this arc where things are going, but what we do know is that the status quo has been severely perturbed, and this character has to make a change. Right, I I completely agree with that. And the thing I like, and I think we'll we'll kind of call this out a few times throughout the the analysis, but I like that a we focus pretty much just on our main character here on Victoria. Um, I was kind of wondering going from the prologue, if we were going to start introducing that other group, the chat room group of, of characters that we had kind of met. And I was kind of looking out for it as I read um, to see if, Hey, could this person, anytime there's a Cape that's introduced in the story is like, could this person be one of those? Could they? And from what I can tell, the answer to that question is no, that none of the characters, um, now we had we had one or two characters that relates to some of those characters in the chat room group, but none of the characters that we met as part of that group in the prologue have been introduced into the story yet, and that allows us to really spend this entire first arc focusing on our protagonist, defining our protagonist, and defining her ch- conflict and need for change to come. Yeah, and I think that makes perfect sense because we really want to make sure that we're grounded in this character um, before we start introducing other uh, important characters I, I think yeah and the other thing i like that it, that it did overall is it did not throw a whole bunch of worm characters back at us too i mm-hmm. think i think there there would be a very um a real like pull to kind of show us like want to show us these characters as early as possible because they're characters that that people and fans really like and i, I appreciate the wild bow held off on that i mean we see one or two People we see Biter later on, um, and we have reference, kind of loose reference to Tattletale. We have uh, loose reference to 
uh, some of the other villains of the past book, but it's not like a fan service. He's like, look, here is all these old guys you like. It's here's all these new characters and let's get you to like them. And I appreciate yeah, yeah. that. Victoria's family, I think, is is really the, the biggest load of that that we get. And that's completely yeah. kind of necessary. Yeah. So, and they were such yeah. kind of small characters in the story as well that yeah. Um, yeah. I, I didn't feel like we were just going back and playing the greatest hits of worm or anything like that. And I'm sure exactly. like, like it's very clear to me that that tattletale is going to become involved in the story more. I'm sure we'll see those other characters. They will make their appearances and they might even end up playing a part of the story. But I appreciate that. It wasn't like we have to do this right away because we have to hook people. Um, it, this is very much a story that seems like it's set out to make its own stakes in the world and not just, not just be identified as sequel to worm. Yeah. It all feels very metered and uh, deliberate and I, and I love it. <laughs> All um, right. Yeah. So, so, so a couple of announcements. I guess these are more like reactions um, to the previous set of announcements, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or re- had... Really just feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I think we, like, there, it was a great discussion thread as always last week, but we had, I think there were two things that kind of rose to the top that we saw multiple people mention in comments. So we just kind of mm-hmm. wanted to address those. Yeah. So one of those was this idea where people were, were upset that we weren't going to be speculating. And I think I I don't think we meant to say we will never speculate on anything on the direction of any characters or any plot threads. I think it would be really difficult, actually, for us to engage with listener feedback and with the text while completely avoiding speculative interpretations of the text. Uh, I think what we meant was more like we're not going to make a game of trying to predict the plot. We're not going to have a Scott speculation section, I don't think. Right. Um, But it I mean, yeah, I think there's going to be some inevitable talking about where things might be going absolutely and i think i think yeah you're you're right that you have to do that to analyze a book um but yeah that's i think you're absolutely right that's what we meant that i'm not going to have a spreadsheet that's tracking right and wrong guesses and and calculating percentages and all that stuff we're not gonna have a formal section it's just going to be part of the analysis yeah um, do you want to do you want to handle this the second one? Yeah. So the other big uh, item of feedback we got from last week's was uh, centered around the uh, Cap and Moon conversation, the Moon Song and uh, and Capricorn. Is that did I get the name right? I yeah. Forget. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, and a lot of people disagreed with our interpretation of the scene, and I went back and listened to it, and I actually think that uh, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth but i think i came off as more like coming down on moonsong side than i wanted to i did i didn't I, I didn't feel like the conversation itself like led to we need to pick sides and one person is awful and one person is great but but on on listening back to our conversation i think i kind of landed on moonsong was better in this conversation and i didn't mean for it to come off that way yeah, I think uh, after digesting everyone's feedback here, I think my ultimate summation was something like uh, it, this is a, a an old relationship with a lot of baggage to it. And but both of them are essentially every statement they make is absolutely laden with like the history of everything that's gone on between them in the past. So, yeah, just viewing this conversation in isolation, it almost doesn't matter who comes off better because we don't know enough about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I will say my initial, my initial feeling, I think like yours was like, Oh, cap comes off worse here. Um, and, and I think some people in the thread, they, their, their initial take was that Moonsong comes off worse. And I, 
Um, I, I think that's very interesting. Actually, I don't, I don't, I don't have any desire to like argue the point. Um, I, I think really just boils down to, yeah, these are people who know each other really well and, and don't particularly like each other. And there's a lot of, uh, old, old wounds there. Yeah. And, and the, the thing that we didn't address that got brought up a lot was this idea that it's possible that Moonsong expresses some bigotry here, um, related to, uh, the character Furcate, who we, get sort of subtle hints might be if not transgendered then like non-binary um in that they are referred to as they throughout moonsong's uh whole soliloquy at at the top of the message board and then capricorn also refers to them as they and then at one point moonsong when when she gets angry reverts back to he and i think this is something that you and i both noticed in the reading i think we held off specifically bring it up because like there's just i don't know if if there's not enough information there to really come down i mean like the name furcate tends to think that this is someone who is bifurcated in some way um yeah that was my my interpretation was that they referred to them as they not because they were agender but because they were plural um yeah. in, in some i mean it's it's cape stuff who knows right. what's going on right uh, so yeah, I I don't want to I, I leave open the possibility that Moonsong um, is 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 not being careful with pronouns, uh, but it's also quite possible that Furcate uh, just it, it was a some kind of plural entity and it was more correct to call them a they. But right. yeah, I, I don't and know. <laughs> from context clues in the, in the the discussion, you are made to think that Moonsong inserted herself into something that she didn't quite understand and that this caused a rift within the group and maybe on some level she possessed some some if you want to call it bigotry or some um lack of understanding of the situation and made mistakes there and this is all this is all hinted at and and I I completely agree that Wildbo put that pronoun switch in there intentionally that's not something that happened by accident we are supposed to notice that and supposed to uh, ponder what that means but I I don't know if if we have enough information to totally land on no she's she's a terrible bigot and she's uh attacking this transgendered person and disrespecting them i i don't know if we know enough information yet if, if that ends up being what it is i could definitely see that and i could see how this is a really excellent way of of setting that up down the road but i think the reason we didn't bring it up specifically is because we just we just don't know yet um yeah yeah not enough confidence in any of these possibilities really yeah 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 and that, yeah that was it for last week all right well then let's get into the first arc of the story daybreak we open 1.1 with a reminder uh, that you really need to have read Worm to get anything out of this. There's there's a person out there, Matt, that is going to ignore this advice. Like, you know, there is one, at least one person out there who is going to see that and go, I don't want to do that and just yeah. read this book. And I I want to meet this person and I want to <laughs> I want to find out what is what is going on in their head. <laughs> yeah. Well, contact us if you're that, that person. The first line is. It was a second chance for humanity as a whole, and they'd gone and screwed it up from the start by coloring the city gold of all colors. So, man, right away, so much to say. We have an attempt at new beginnings, but the new beginning is literally tinged with the trauma of the past. Yeah. So here we have our POV character, who um, I think we can assume is our protagonist due to the first person point of view, but whose name we don't find out for quite a while. 
describes the city to us, the under construction skyline of this mega city that she finds herself in. The glass of all the buildings is tinted gold. All the numerous cranes are yellow. Even the clouds above catch the reflected gold light of the city. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is perfect. Like this is right in line with everything that we had uh, pulled out as like something that the prologue was hinting at um, this, this push and pull between the ideas of starting fresh uh, starting over and then being stuck in the past and it's it's made literal here it's year one of the new future and yet every morning in this place is a gold morning like, yeah. literally <laughs> and like we're gonna see this idea again and again throughout this arc it is really like almost every single character interaction we see has some tinge of this idea of starting fresh moving on but still being held back or holding on to the past. Um, and, and so, so that's great. But here in the first lines of the story, we make that literal, um, with our point of view character. And it's, it's, God, it's perfect. It's so perfect. Yeah, right. I, I think it's fantastic. And in a typical Wild Bow fashion, too, I think in a few chapters, we, we learn that there's an in world reason for this, right? Like, I think they specifically say the gold tinting was like some sort of material that was solar paneling to generate power. So, like, while this works as imagery, he still takes the time to give it a realistic reason for existing in the world. And I appreciate the, the, the attention to detail there. Right. Yeah. I like that we find out significantly later. So it's not just crammed in there kind of awkwardly right when we see like why is it gold it's like it just just accept that it's gold and think about that as being weird for a second and then we're just going to move on yeah and i think that i think that lets the metaphor hit a little bit like if you mm-hmm. if you go into it and then immediately explain why in literal sense then it distracts from what you're trying to say uh, symbolically so mm-hmm. I, I think i think that works really well yeah so our character receives a text message from a parent inviting her to a barbecue tonight she hedges, replying along the lines of, that's short notice, got lots to do. Definitely seems like our character is not inclined to attend this get-together. Yeah, and uh, we figured out why <laughs> in a little bit. Um, it's fun to look back on these texts, though, having read the the arc and, and seeing them in retrospect and kind of see what uh, Carol Dallin is trying to do here. Like, you see there's this repetition in her text, barbecue tonight with everyone. There's been a talk of everyone getting together only missing you and it's this little mini three beat where she's 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 clearly nervous like one of her texts is like not to guilt you (laughs) like she's clearly nervous and she's like lawyering her way into giving the information without giving the information like she doesn't tell she doesn't she doesn't hint that who's going to be at this barbecue at all like that this is not fair to say that this is hinting at all but she's like trying to and then we'll see her lean on on these everyone statements later in a few chapters and it's just like come on but this is i like yeah. how it's set up here and you don't even realize it yet yeah i'm not sure how cynical to be about it but it does you could make the case that she's just sort of creating plausible deniability such that she can say like look look at these texts i sent this is what i said it's not my fault if you didn't interpret yeah. it literally and she might not even be doing that consciously but i think the repetition of the word everyone and and the the uncomfortableness that she comes off here like like that seems to indicate that yes she is it is explicit that she's trying to cover herself at least whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's subconsciously or consciously i don't know but yeah come on carol come on I know. So then we have a crash interrupt 
uh, our characters attempt to reply to the text. Which is which is a fun little possibly entirely unintentional hint as to how that barbecue scene is going to go. You have her mm-hmm. trying to respond about going to the barbecue and then interrupted by bang. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Foreshadowing, I guess. Yeah. So a teenager has crashed your car into a short pillar damaging it. We learn about the pillars. They're monuments to the dead, densely peppering the city, each monument bearing the plaques of uh, four deceased people. Yeah. Which this, I, I, wrote for a while about the scene matt because i liked it so much um because uh-huh. th- this this really the things that are happening here fits nicely into those themes and the, those thematic conflicts we've been discussing so far our protagonist describes these uh these pillars as as littering the city um she she says that there were as many pillars as there were trees and there were a lot of trees and then a, a memorial that that is made to the people that died during gold morning is certainly a thing that should happen, but it, it kind of seems that the rogue cape that's responsible for doing this doesn't, doesn't just want people to remember what happened. He kind of, he wants to overpower them with that memory. Like, like those gold pane windows, the pillars are like a near constant reminder of the past. Like it's it, it, inescapable. They're everywhere. And, and I think, I think like, to the thing that I love that the story does is if to demonstrate the inherent conflict with that kind of thing, with that kind of representation and, and that kind of fresh start versus past trauma push pull conflict that can happen. The first thing we see with these pillars is someone violently crashing into them. Yeah, that's right. Someone just going about their day is, is tripping over the, the memorials to the past yeah. trauma and loss. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing here for, for us to, to get to understand our protagonist a little bit, um, she sees them at, while understanding as kind of ineffective. She specifically says that if work continued for another 50 or 100 years, there wouldn't be a pillar for 1% of the people we lost. And that's only if you only count the people in the northeastern part of the United States. So so in this thematic conflict we've been discussing for a while, we, we get the first hints at, at which side our protagonist is going to land on. Like later she describes the pillars themselves as ugly. Here she hints that they're ineffective. And it seems like, Matt, someone that 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 doesn't want to deal with something horrible that happened in their past and, and is, is trying to move on from it. It, it kind of seems like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. Although I think there's some ambivalence there because uh, we're going to see in, in a minute that she immediately calls the guy who makes these things to come repair it. So yeah, yeah. So there's, I, I think it's fair to say she's of two minds about it. But yeah, I definitely, I definitely see what you're saying there. So here we have an old man who's obviously someone who had some connection to the victim whose plaque was destroyed by the crash. Um, turns out that it's his son's plaque. He's devastated, and our protagonist inserts herself into the situation, asking if the girl driving the car that crashed into the monument is okay and reassuring her. Yeah, and, and this is probably me reading too much into things at this point, but I think this is another fun hint at the, the metaphorical conflict at play here. The per- person represented by remembering and holding on to the past is an old man. The per- person representing the other side of that conflict, the, the fresh start, the carry-on, is just a girl and maybe like maybe i am reading too much into it but when you hear girl used instead of woman the connotation is the person is young so in this conflict between past and future made literal we have an old person and a young person and i I, it feels like that's something that's intentional i don't know Uh, i i I actually thought about this a lot because i was thinking about like 
if if you were to make a memorial like if you were to make a memorial to 9-11 i feel like most people would have a would have a lot of like uh, agreement that that was a good thing to have if you wanted to make a big a big obvious memorial to world war ii you'd have fewer people if you wanted a big obvious large kind of in your face memorial to the war of 1812 or something you'd have really nobody around being like yeah we really it's really important that we commemorate the loss and trauma of the war of 1812 it's it's like um you and and i i don't know if i i don't know if it was implicit people of different ages might have different feelings about this too because if you're if you're alive for the event and if you're if you're an adult during the event for example you're going to have completely different feelings than if you're a small child um so yeah i, I think there's something to that yeah well and it's it's the the girl herself her she she does feel bad for what happened but but that guilty feeling is specific to the man and the reaction his habit he's having and never specific to the fact that she's just damaged this memorial that is important to her like it never seems to be that focus it's it, so it never explicitly says that this is the memorial itself is something that is important to her it's just i hurt this old man and i feel bad about it yeah i agree so yeah the girl does offer a clumsy apology to the old man and he kind of starts toward her uh, and our protagonist intercepts him um and obviously, it's worth mentioning, uh, I think here is an appropriate time, that a big part of our consciousness while reading this for the first time is aimed at, who is this? What are her powers? Is she using powers here? Does she have powers? <laughs> Whose head are we in? Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and this is, I think, one of those fun places where where you can compare Worm and Ward a little bit. And in, in the very first chapter of Worm, Taylor's powers are kind of played as a reveal to us. Um, we meet this girl. She's in a classroom. She's dreading lunch. Um, she goes to the bathroom and then th- th- she's bullied. And then suddenly we see her looking in the mirror and then there are bugs moving. It's like, oh, you control bugs. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> uh, in, in Ward, we already know this world. We understand this world and we're expecting and waiting for the reveal of is this person a cape? What are this person's powers? And, and Wildbo, to his credit, doesn't give us that even after we know who it is. He holds on to that for a while. And I think that's one of the fun things sequels can do because sequels understand what the expectations are and then can subvert them in different ways. Yeah, I know there was a chance that Wildbo might not have gone with Victoria. And, and it's it's fun that he... Uh, sorry, I spoiled it, didn't I? Um, I, don't but, think, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't think anyone <laughs> listening to this doesn't know who the protagonist is. Right. Um, but, but, uh, he, he, one of the cool things you can do about it being Victoria specifically is like, yeah, we, we don't really know what her powers are anymore because she's one of the few characters you can think of where there's a plausible reason why her powers would change. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in case we hadn't yet noticed what our character was doing, uh, in the narration, it says the crowd too seemed to realize that the situation had mostly de-escalated. <laughs> oh, de-escalated. Matt. Oh, Matt. I, I, I love this. We just yeah. we just talked about the strength of sequels, how, how you can handle audience expectations in an exciting way. But one of the drawbacks of sequels, I think, is that, is that they invite comparison between characters, between story, between narrative, all these things, especially your protagonist character. So, so one of the big questions I know I had going into Ward was, 
how will our point of view character differ from Taylor? And how will the events and themes of the story shape around those differences in characters? And I think Wild Bo answers that in, in a rather, rather conclusive manner here right in the first chapter. Um, we, we both know that escalation was one of the big themes of wor- Worm, Taylor's need or desire to, to, uh, to escalate conflict was one of her larger character flaws. And, and, and we see here that, that Wild Bo is, is inviting us to draw this comparison and re- literally reverse it. This protagonist strives for de-escalation. And this is not something that he just does at the beginning and lets go of. We see this again and again and again throughout this arc. Yeah, and, and this I, character is fighting against her own instincts to do so. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so here we have uh, a cape. A cape uh, shows up on the scene, and our character assesses his appearance, finding his costume a bit wanting, but adding that it's her personal opinion, not objective truth. <laughs> I, I didn't even catch this on my first read-through, so I'm, I'm glad you, you pulled this out. Um, and, and to compare back to Taylor again, and I, I promise we are not going to do this too often throughout the book. I think it's fitting when we're being introduced to the character, but I don't want to make this worm board comparison hour. Um, But uh, one of the reasons I think we saw a lot of disconnect between our interpretation of Taylor and uh, some of our, our why, but friendly listeners (laughs) interpretation of Taylor is because Taylor never makes statements like this. She never says, well, I think this, but this is just my opinion. If Taylor thought something, if Taylor said something or did something, the the thing she thought, said, or did it was done because it was, to her, an objective truth. Like, it, it just was. Like, if I'm going to think it, if I'm going to say it, if I'm going to do it, this is this is the truth. <laughs> this is this is what it is. That's how she lived her life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, again, our, our, our mystery protagonist, why, why we keep pretending, um, seemingly does not do this at all. She's fully aware that... This is just my perspective on this, and others could be different. Yeah, and we're later going to find out that that our mysterious protagonist is what, like, like roughly twenty one, or, or how old is she? Nineteen? I forget uh, 19 exactly. Nineteen in body, twenty one in head. <laughs> yeah, twenty one in head. That's that's what I was going for. Um, whereas Taylor was sixteen, and yeah. and I, I just find that this is a much more you know age appropriate way of of seeing things. Taylor was, you know, vicious and and completely. Uh, uh, um, you know, absolutely mean in her assessments of people's physical appearances, and here we have this person just kind of making a judgment, yes, yeah. but 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 in kind of a light, in kind of a light way. Yeah, so, and I think yeah. I, I like that you pulled that out because I think the the maturity of the main character is going to play into things absolutely going through the story, yeah. um, and I think that that fits as this is now Wildbo's fourth novel. Um, mm-hmm. He's matured as a writer, and he's he's older now too. And I think we're going to see the story kind of reflect that. I think that's cool. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, yeah, so I just think that it's telling that this cape who shows up is literally made of violent in- imagery. He's dressed like a medieval torture chamber, and he's standing there <laughs> asking if he can help with this delicate interpersonal situation. And, and it's like, no, no, you can't. Uh, but our, our point of view character, who for all appearances is just a civilian in this context, can help. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I wonder if this is going to be a continuing thread in the book that uh, there's there's this ongoing like idea in most comic book films and stories that that superheroes are 
do-gooders for the people. They do everything. They save cats from trees, and they also fight the giant monsters that attack the city. But maybe, maybe there are things that capes just really aren't equipped to handle, especially in these rocky peacetimes. Maybe the the responsibilities in, in this future world uh, after the end of the world is they need to shift. Like, maybe he's not needed here. Yeah, I mean, maybe they need to learn how to butt out, yeah. frankly. <laughs> uh, especially in situations like this where you just don't need superpowers to be involved right, at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the people standing by agree with this idea one of them says we don't need you yeah and 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 this sentiment is reactionary it is dangerous and it is teething with anger or maybe a a different emotion we'll discuss in a few chapters but it might not be entirely wrong here you know like like i I, there's there's danger with this way of thinking and victoria oh sorry our our mysterious protagonist (laughs) rightly calls out the danger with that that way of thinking in, in a bit but th- th- like with any anyway anything, there might be a kernel of truth to it, and the society, Cape society, human society, need to adjust to this new reality. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I, I uh, yet another thing that I like about having her be our our guide into this story is that she's really not a partisan to either the Cape side or the civilian side. She sees both angles right. better than better than any of the capes we meet and really better than any of the civilians we meet. Yeah. And it's because of her kind of unique position. Yeah, I agree. But she is, I mean, she's definitely kind of team cape though. Like, yeah, at least in the fact that her goal, at least in these early chapters is to, to stick up for the, the, the good guy capes that she respects so much and hopefully turn people to that side. But yeah, I, I you're right. She, she does have that kind of, maybe halfway between both sides and able to see both sides better than, than others can. Yeah. I agree that she is team Kate, but, I, but yeah, it's more of a matter of perspective. Um, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yes. So our, our character notices the badge that this guy is wearing and it's, it's advanced guard, which is a team with a forward looking agenda. And she respects this notion of being forward looking and not, not dwelling on the past. Uh, and so we learn a little bit more about her. Yeah. And that, I think this ties into her kind of, empathetic tendencies which we we just kind of touched on was like she navigates these situations by understanding and reasoning what each person in the situation wants and needs she sees the cape she knows how the old man will deal with it she knows how the capes deal with it she knows how the crowd will probably deal with it and 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 she knows what the girl wants to do as well and she's able to navigate these things by by getting into the emotional space of these people yeah, that's that is uh, that is really worth talking about. Just in terms of how this character's inner life is portrayed, she spends a lot of you know a lot of page space of this first chapter just tuning into these different people and and getting getting a read on them, trying to understand what's going on in their heads, and and it's not so she can like defeat them. It's it's just to <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah it, it's it's just to kind of get a sense of the situation so that she can move into it in a careful way. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the general hostility of the crowd drives this hero off. And, uh, and our character thinks back to how the first hero, uh, I think it's Vicare. Is that how you say it? I think that's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was killed by a senseless act of aggression in a meaningless sports riot and how situations just like this one are actually pretty dangerous. Uh, I think this, might be more dangerous than actual cape battles actually because there's just kind of this 
mob mentality, whereas in, in cape battles, the capes tend to moderate their attacks intentionally and not try to kill each other. <laughs> Foreshadowing for the second half of this, this arc. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, she goes out of her way to compliment his response time before he leaves, subtly propping up the cape in front of other people. Yeah, and this is, I think this gets to what we were talking about before, that, that our protagonist is definitely Team Cape. Definitely. She, 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 she's understanding of the anger that the anti-cape sentiment has. She gets it, but she doesn't really necessarily agree with it. Um, she, she wants, she wants someone to speak for the other side here and, and sees that no one else is going to do it, then it might as well be her. Because if no one else is going to do it, then she has to. And, and this idea of, well, if no one else is going to speak for these people, if no one else is going to step up, then I have to be the one. Um, that's something that will be echoed multiple times throughout the rest of this arc. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so our character gives her statement to the police and then heads to work at a high school. We gradually get a sense of what's going on with her job. It's a sort of broad civil service for high school age kids. Gil Patrick is the guy in charge, and he has a general attitude of trying to scare people off so that they're, they'll only join if they're really committed. She chats with Jasper. Um, and we meet a few other kids. Then she heads to her office, the closest thing to a home that she has, according to her. Here's her collection of books and documents, articles, handbound, lots of uh, Weaver Dice and Word of God pronounced, basically. Just a lot, of, a lot of, you know, cape stuff, power stuff. So it looks like our mysterious protagonist is a regular poster on the Parahuman subreddit, huh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if they're the one that made the comment about how Amy was a badly written character. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, hmm. that's really the only only explanation I can think of. Yeah, it must be. She also has files on various groups and specific capes and also magazines, which just so happen to be the ones that Point Me at the Sky talked about collecting from the ruins of Bet on the Parahumans Online message board. Yeah, and, and I really enjoy that this is how Wildbo chooses to confirm that these are these two people are one and the same. Um it's a classic example of show don't tell, right? He he could have had her literally log into Parahumans Online in this moment and then logged in and said, log in as Point Me in the Sky, which would basically be the book yelling to the reader, hey, the, the, these two people are the same. Do you get it? Do you get it? But instead, we handle that a lot more subtly. The, the person just looks over stuff we know that Point Me at the Sky is collected. They they reference their frustration with the tarps that had come loose and and point me at the sky specifically asked her friend for help with that so it's very it's subtle but it, it works in a way that's not like obvious exposition yeah i like it so now gil patrick shows up at her office and we start to get that uh, they're actually going to be giving guns to these teenagers at some point hence the drive to push them <laughs> away so that they're, they're <laughs> not just joining up so they can have a gun yeah and, and there's something interesting about the idea of recruiting children to basically be soldiers, right? If you're going to even gun, they're basically a, a force or soldier for you. And it's especially interesting in the context of Worm, in which capes were kind of forced into these situations where they had to be child soldiers because out of necessity. And But that was, that was something that all the older capes, like with the original intention of the wards, was stuff that they never actually wanted to happen. It just kind of happened that way. And we see now that this has kind of spread beyond just capes in this in this after end of world scenario no kid gets to just be a kid anymore whether they have powers or not yeah i couldn't help but notice you know the name of the story is war there's there i feel like there's going to be a focus on this idea of um 
young people being put into a situation where they need to be protected, but they also need to be uh, given some responsibility themselves. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. And, and this is a world where I think the point is being made implicitly. Now you actually need this situation. You, right. you need you, you, the, the world is so things are so tense that you actually need to give teenagers guns and send them out into into possibly dangerous situations um, because you just can't pretend that the world is, is safe anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Gilpatrick asks her about a particular cape name of fume hood, AKA poison apple, AKA bad apple. This former villain is going to join a new hero team today. And there's an expectation that this could go poorly. Apple girl is getting a lot of hate online. Yeah. And I find it really thematically delicious um apple apple red, red delicious it's, it's a joke um yeah. that the first main conflict of ward revolves around a team of heroes just stepping up to declare themselves heroes this this is what creates conflict and tension in a post gold morning world now that there's just just someone says i want to be hero now and there's conflict because of it um and and i also kind of appreciate like the the to talk metatextually for a bit, the idea of, of um, online hate, a lot of online hate spilling into real world conflict um, is something that's very um, common in the world we live in now. And I, I liked seeing it referenced a bit here. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense because the online is kind of all people have in terms of getting <laughs> yeah. information. Yeah. Yeah. So Gilpatrick asks our character for her help on the ground, and our character pushes back hard. Yeah, and it's not just a normal kind of pushback, right? She's She's got a serious aversion to being on the front line. Can't do it. I'm not front line. I can't be front line. It's, she, she won't. She won't do it. That's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, where she's very very insistent about this so that now she watches jasper give the five pounds of gun speech which is basically just a big speech designed to make the job seem terribly arduous and embarrassing yeah and i want to i want to take a second to talk about that speech and and how the idea behind this could possibly reflect on the story as a whole right because the, the the basic gist of the speech is your gun is five pounds your body armor is 15 pounds and your pack that is filled with supplies is 25 pounds, right? So yeah. these are the, the percentages of importance. Like you should strive to first help people, second, protect yourself, and third, and only if you need to, do a little offense. And like you were just talking about the idea of the, the title of this thing as Ward, it seems like that is going to fit a lot in, thematically into the the drive the desire of our main character that first and foremost help people um fight mm -hmm. as a last resort yeah yeah i love that yeah um so yeah the point of view thinks about the uncertainty the powder keg nature of the situation that they're going to be walking into and e even with the safeguards in place and the fact that getting all these angry kids together and trying to drive their anger in productive directions is inherently risky <laughs> yep so, so now she gives them a briefing on Fumehood, and we learn that she was pals with or was dating Blasto, the greatest hero of Worm. Oh, my God. Blasto. Why, why do we keep having to remind us of what happened to Blasto? <laughs> I have dreams about what happened to Blasto. I still see 
a freaking spine going in someone's mouth. I can't, I can't deal with this. Yeah. Uh, so good. Uh, so the villainous accidentally, uh, the villainous, that being fume hood accidentally caused a miscarriage with one of her poison bombs she generates. And then after this, she turns herself in, um, basically to avoid the heat. She serves her time, but people are still angry and are now targeting her. A lot of the kids present aren't happy about the idea that Fume Hood gets a pass and they're actually supposed to be protecting her against others. You kind of get the feeling that these kids would sympathize more with the protesters than uh, than they would prefer to defend this cape. Yeah, yeah. And this this does a really good job at, uh, at setting up the tension um, that's going to uh, unfold over the next few chapters. Uh, there's these random calls of anger from students that the, the – the main character specifically calls back to how this reminded her of the angry people at the broken pillar. We've kind of come full circle in this first chapter. But these these are the people that are supposed to be making sure that situation does not escalate. It's like they're about to throw a whole group of tailors into an interview room with Alexandria. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so our character decides that she's going to go with them after all. It's a spur of the moment impulsive decision based on this the sense she's getting that it would be so easy for us to see another vicari yeah yeah and 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 just like when she stepped in before it's not because she wants to it's not it's it's and it's not just because she thinks maybe i'm the only one who could keep things from getting out of control but rather i'm the only one who's going to step up to do it so it's 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 a very interesting viewpoint into into who she is because she, she clearly doesn't want to do this, but like with like with speaking up and defending the cape back in front of that pillar or, or making him feel better or bringing something positive to the interaction, she feels like no one else is going to do this. So I guess I guess I have to. Yeah, somewhere in here, Gilpatrick called her a natural leader. And I think that's, you know, part of it is the kind of super powered active listening skills that she's showing all the time. And then part of it is just the fact that she's the one who's willing to step up. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have the reveal for those of you who've just joined us. My name is Victoria Dowlin and I'll be your squad captain today. <gasps> and I clapped. <laughs> um, so I, I, I originally thought we would talk about the implications of Victoria being the protagonist for a bit here and what that means for the story. But I think the implications for Victoria being the protagonist is this arc that's that's yeah. that's what we do and and in your mind the first thing jumps into is is her being the horrible deformed person and that's the first thing that jumps at you and and your thought of oh my god that's going to be a huge issue for her and it absolutely is but the thing that i love most about how the rest of these chapters unfold is we learn that that is just one of of victoria's many many issues and I think she's a fascinating character. I think it was a great choice, um, and I'm really excited about this. Yeah, it is really interesting that this first chapter, we've seen almost no indication of her various traumas. Um, it, it's not until the second chapter we start to get hit hints of it. Yep. And by the last chapter of this arc, uh, she's in something that you could call a crisis, I think. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to wade through that. So we open 1.2. Victoria digs through her locker, getting ready for the mission. She goes over her possessions, giving us a sense of what's to be expected. 
Yeah, and I really like the detail here. That she, she she specifically mentions she's got to put pants on, pants that she doesn't wear very often, and she hasn't worn them since winter, which which serves to give us a good idea of how how little she really uses this combat gear. She doesn't she doesn't go out. Like she it's not she does not go on missions. And also the little detail of the the salt crusting on the heels. Um like like these are it, it's summer now, it's August, and she's still got the salt from winter on her pants. Um, the past still clinging on to the present. It's something that Victoria sees and immediately washes off. Um, yeah, there's a couple of beats in this arc of stuff sticking to her physically. Yep. So Gilpatrick stops by to talk to her while she changes uh, inappropriately. Um, she requests Jasper for her squad because she knows him and wants to be able to rely on him to, in managing the attitudes of the others. She'd rather not take the angry ones at all, but Gilpatrick pushes yeah, and I think this is the first time she specifically mentions her paranoia, and it, it's it's a word that she'll repeat again and again throughout the, the the arc, and it turns out with kind of good reason. She she comes off as very paranoid, but uh, she's kind of right <laughs> in at least a couple of places. Right? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's like p- paranoia when dealing with capes is uh, correct and Safe. warranted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so she puts on armor, old PRT body armor with the owner's name filed off although you can still see that it was cameron yeah and and it might seem like we're repeating ourselves a little bit here but i think that's just because the book is is really hammering home some of this imagery here that that this idea of trying to get rid of the past but it's still being there and uh, i I think it's great it's important and i'm glad the book is doing it but it's it's not just us repeating ourselves (laughs) Yeah, it's it's worth pointing out. I mean, you've got a school bus that's been repainted. You've got armor that's been filed down. Everything they're using is something from the past that has been repurposed, but yeah. you can still see what it used to be before this horrible thing happened. Yeah. So Gilpatrick leaves, and she looks at herself in the mirror to tidy her hair. And we have, hi, me, I thought, as I made eye contact. How to describe that feeling? something resembling relief and a sinking feeling at the same time. It was a small feeling, but still one that I would carry with me for the rest of the day. That day would be a little bit worse because of the moment, but it would feel more stable for the reminder too. So yeah, two years later, we're going to find she still locks up with overwhelming dysmorphia, just seeing her own reflection. Yeah, and I love I love the dichotomy of how it's both disturbing and reassuring to her at the same time. Like that, that she both gets reassurance that yes, this is me now, but it still brings back that trauma as well. And I, I love that. Like you talked earlier about how Victoria might have have two heads about things, and I think this is we're seeing this again that that she is a person kind of divided, um, and and so that a, a thing like this could be both reassuring and troubling to her at the same time is a is great. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I want to – sorry, go ahead. No, no, you, you finish. I just wanted to, to touch on this for a minute structurally. You hinted at this at the beginning of the chapter. Um, we had this entire chapter where we didn't know who Victoria was. Um, but we were still learning about her even though we didn't know who she was. We saw little hints of her vulnerabilities, uh, her, her desire to avoid conflict, her, her conflict, her extreme want to not be a frontline fighter, um, and the reason she still – hasn't thought of her powers. Um, like, and, and it's interesting that, like I said, she has still not thought of her powers once. Um, but 
it really isn't until we start knowing who we're dealing with that 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 we see that this is Victoria, that her problems really start to show up. Like you said, that that Victoria was held as a fun reveal, yes, but the book didn't really hold that out as like a huge mystery to be solved, like this reveal of who Victoria is. It was just a fun way to end the chapter. And now that we've done that, let's start delving into the problems of the character. Yeah, that's right. So she braids her hair and then meets up with Jasper and the other kids. Um, and she rides shotgun in the repurposed school bus. And, and again, we see another another small beat of this this uh, dysmorphia where she she's sitting on the chair and, and thinks, didn't do anything to spare my ass from the warm faux leather seat. I didn't like being aware of my body to that extent. So basically, we're just saying she she gets thrown off when she sees herself in the mirror. She gets thrown off when she feels her own body and the shape of her body. And and it's not something that she's um okay with really at this point yeah yeah and i think it's great that the longer we're in her head the more we learn that just day by day minute by minute her her life is is kind of ruled by this this former trauma and it's Mm -hmm. heartbreaking yeah so they start heading out to the target location and they talk about stretches and spans feeding us a little bit more information about how this world is laid out places are named after what they would be on a map of bet if it's a band of settlement and it runs east-west, then it's a span. If it's a north-south band, then it's a stretch. And if it's not a band at all but just kind of a blob, then it's just gets a place name. Yeah, and this is, this is I think, the kind of world building that Wild Bo really excels at. Um, and, and frankly, it seems like he's gotten a little better at it too since he wrote Where Am I? I really like how this information is doled out to us. This is basically entirely exposition, this entire conversation about stretches and spans and it doesn't do anything specifically in the story except expand our knowledge of the world and it's very effective in that it builds the world a little bit we we get a feeling this is more real and i like the idea that we're trying to name these things after the other places we don't really know if it's where it is like and i like the idea that if it's both um well then it's just it's just a place (laughs) we we don't really have I don't really have a name for that yet. So it's just like, it shows, it defines so much about the state of society in this world at this point. Right. And, and it's yet again, another, another beat of where are we getting these names from? Well, we're getting them from what they would be called on our actual home world, which is gone now. Yeah. Um, so if anything, it's like a memorial. I mean, this, this is new, new Brockton, I think. Um, not, you know, it's not Brockton Bay. It's it's the resurrected Brockton Bay. Yeah. So <coughs> sorry. So Jasper turns the conversation to discussing uh, his his call sign that he wants, which is Jester. Uh, and he says, if people don't start calling him Jester, he's going to get a tattoo of a Jester, and then they'll have to. <laughs> and everybody tells him that he's an idiot. He totally is an idiot. But I I kind of love his idiocy, and I yeah. like how he does this really to deflect the conversation away from uncomfortable things. Um, like there's, there's this, this bit about like what role the, tr- these, these child troops are going to be in the future. Will they be supporting the capes or, or checking, making sure that they're behaving? There's tension here. And he, he deflects it perfectly by talking about this dumb, stupid idea. He has. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's awesome. Um, 
but then somebody says Victoria Dallin's full name from the back of the uh, of the bus. Name sounds familiar. Yeah, and th- this is interesting to me because I I hadn't thought about this until it was brought up here, but. If you're trying to keep a low profile, I wonder why you'd keep your name the same when you were part of the group that was notorious for unmasking and showing their names to the world. Um, especially if you're the type of person that so far seems to be really gung ho in in moving forward. Um, it's it's interesting, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think I can make an argument for why she would choose to do it, but it's one of those things where. She's being pulled in two different in two different directions where she she kind of wants to she she doesn't want to throw away who she is. She wants to reclaim who she is. Yeah. And I, th- and I think we'll, we'll I think that's absolutely true. And, and I was kind of intentionally leaving this as a cliffhanger because I think we, we see that confirmed later in the story that that she absolutely being Victoria Dallin is is so important to her. Like being this person, not not changing who she is not becoming someone new recapturing this person this identity is really important to her and so yeah of course she would she would do she would keep that name yeah yeah um and then we have she she thinks her name and then she looks at herself in the bus's side view mirror yeah i like that yeah and then jasper says i think it's how it basically basically says like basically says leave it and then the other person's like oh that's how it is is it and then he says i think it's how everything is not just this when you're bringing up the past whoever you're talking to there are two likely possibilities first it's good and we miss the shit out of it or second it's bad and why would you bring up the bad except to be a tool i like jasper jester matt his name is jester i'm sorry i'm sorry so they reach the community center a building made of stone in the midst of a number of hasty prefab constructions. She gives Jasper special orders to watch for anybody sneaking out of the event. Uh, she tries to call him Jester, but immediately walks it back, saying, it's against everything I stand for, um, which you could read as a joke, like uh, hyperbole. Uh, but remember, this is the woman from New Wave with a long, complicated history with call signs. And uh, I'm not sure if it's a joke. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this interaction is, there is no textual indication one way or another. We don't get any kind of hint at what Victoria, what face she's making, what she's doing when she says this. There's no verbal clues. There's no physical clues, whether this is a joke or not. And in fact, Jasper's reaction to it kind of indicates that it, it wasn't that, that, that like, he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and I think I think like we're hinting at this is the answer to why Victoria would not change her name. Um, she ha- she's she's suffering a bit of an identity crisis, and now she gets to be Victoria Dallin again, and she wants to continue to be this person. Um, she I wonder if we're going to get to a situation in this story where she takes a cape name again. And at this point, my answer is probably no, because being Victoria is so important to her right now. Yeah, as we're going to find out in a little bit, she's pretty happy not being Lori Girl, certainly. Yeah. That's just not how she identifies at all. Um, in, in fact, by the end of this arc, it feels a little bit weird to say the protagonist of Ward is Glory Girl. It's like, no, it's Victoria. Yeah. Glory Girl is dead. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. Um, so inside the building, it seems that things aren't under control. Um, 
and and she she has this moment of um, basically uh, struggle where she thinks it's not a big thing. It was like treading water in a hand on my forehead, pushing me down before pulling away, surfacing again, finding my equilibrium, realizing how tired I was as I resumed treading water. Yeah, so <laughs> Victoria is like, I'm not going to say good at dealing with her issues, but good at presenting herself as dealing with her issues. And she just, like, casually mentions here that she's just, like, perpetually drowning and barely keeping her head above water. And the only thing that steadies her is when she gets to look at herself in a mirror, which is also the thing that triggers her. And we're going to see, like, it's really interesting to watch this progression throughout the arc that that first chapter, she was really solid. She almost didn't mention her trauma at all. This chapter we kind of get hints and as we go throughout this things just going to get worse and worse again it's like that 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 imagery of a hand pushing on her forehead pushing her down is going to keep happening and keep happening and eventually that that hand is just going to like keep her down and it's that's that's how we get to this this crisis that she finds herself in yeah i feel like victoria has a lot of coping strategies that she's uh, possibly learned during the two years that she had in the institution. Yep. Um, and coping strategies are, are great, obviously. But what she hasn't done is she hasn't really specifically worked on the, the, all of the many issues that she's accumulated and certainly not the ones that she's dealing with right now. So yes, the coping strategies are akin to, you know, employing effort to stay afloat. You, you have to actively employ those coping strategies, but sometimes they're not sufficient. Uh, yeah. And especially when you're being hit with emotional attacks. Yeah. yeah. Some, it's not enough to just tread water. Eventually you need to swim to shore. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a huge crowd of, of so-called naysayers, as the bureaucrat calls them, protesters outside. Basically, there's just too much going on. It's too chaotic. So Victoria goes to talk to the Cape team and notes their low-key costumes and how they mostly look a bit defeated. The four capes agree that things feel off and crystal clear. The guy with glass chunks coming out of his face and head and elbows is getting a bad thinkerish vibe. They, they decide to give up on announcing Fume Hood's membership. Uh, but as the announcement is made, it's crystal clear that something is still off. Boo. <laughs> Boo. That was terrible. I heard that. <laughs> All right. And then we move into 1.3. And we still don't know if she has freaking powers. Yeah. Uh, she thinks that she would like to take to the skies here. But we don't know if she can't take to the skies or won't take to the skies. She does crack her knuckles badassedly, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, I, I think this is when I realized as well that we were three chapters in and she hasn't thought – She hasn't. It's not, it's not just that she hasn't used her powers. It's that she hasn't really even thought – about them like we're in her head this is a first person story and she hasn't thought about using her powers once or, or not even using them just that they exist that they could be used um and you're absolutely right here this is the first little indication that 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 those power that she acknowledges the existence of those powers but it's not clear whether she can't or won't yeah um and i i will just say that this is this kind of makes sense on the nerdy powers level because she's a brute and a lot of the characters whose heads we're in are masters or thinkers and their stream of consciousness is usually dominated by um sort of intrusive 
sensory data from their from their shard, uh, whereas um, with Victoria, she can go about her day and essentially not really have powers if she doesn't want to. Yeah, which is uh, which is unique and cool. That's true. So, so yeah, we learned the names of all these capes: Crystal Clear, Long Scratch, Tempera, and Fume Hood. Crystal Clear sees through everything as if it were crystal. Uh, with some extra thinkery stuff tinging what he sees, plus a blaster power that lets him shoot through walls. I really like how Wildbow describes, or or rather admits that there's almost a complete lack of ability to describe what this power looks like. It's like how 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 do you describe describe a color to a person who's never seen a color? Like you you can't. How do you describe what this guy sees in loose ways that don't really make a lot of sense? But I I, I appreciated that detail. Yeah, it's it's cool. Um, he sees a lot of nutso stuff happening in the near future to people and walls in the vicinity. Uh, and Victoria tells Jasper to bring the bus closer to the door for a rapid evac. Yeah, um, this this has been a really tense situation since Victoria got here, but we're st- starting to really ramp that tension up. And, and now Crystal Clear, ironically, <laughs> isn't really clear on what the danger is, just that there's danger. Um, the actual event itself is not very clear, um, and so which only like adds to the stress and the tension of the scene. You know something's going to happen. You don't know when or how or what. Yeah, right. That's excellent. Excellent tension building. Um, so the heroes talk amongst themselves, and one refers to the people as hating them. The Victoria interjects and says, it's really blame, not hate. Fumehood leaves to get her glass of water, and after a small moment with Crystal Clear, Victoria goes to join her. Yeah, I really like the blame versus hate discussion a lot. Um, it, it ties into Victoria herself, right? Does 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 she hate Amy, or does she just blame her? And how much of that outward hatred is her blaming herself? And we're gonna learn more about that later. But that, that's one thing I really like about Victoria is she's seemingly fully aware of what her problems are. She's just not doesn't know how or doesn't have the capacity to actually deal with them. She knows what they are. She she's like she's selectively ignorant at times, but she's she's aware. Like she, yeah, she's I know what my issues are. I just try to cope with them instead of deal with them. Yeah, right. She's completely aware of which thoughts are radioactive. She just can't make them not radioactive anymore. Yeah. So Victoria and Fumehood have a wonderful little heart to heart here and I think this is our first kind of deep dive into another character in this story. Fumehood is a young villain who feels little to no remorse and only ever turned herself in due to the exhaustion of being chased and, and additionally the boredom with the villain lifestyle. But she does have quite a bit of self-awareness. She says, you know, she's saying, I, I, don't, ha- I don't have character. I'm, I'm all about me, me, me. I just wanted a clean slate and some education. That's why I turned myself in. I'm not a good person. Yeah, I, this is a really, Fumehood is a really interesting character, um, and her, her version of Reformation is very interesting to me, and very different, and I, I like the idea of exhaustion in villainy, this idea that living this lifestyle is exhausting, and eventually you just don't want to, it's not, it's not like a long-term thing, it's not a way to long-term live your life, and we kind of, like, Taylor proved that in the micro back in her first mission with the wards in Chicago, right? That, that she kept people out in the cold until they eventually gave up, gave up. But 
but in the macro, that is also true as well. If you spent years running and always in trouble, eventually you just get tired and you don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, especially if you're not successful. Yeah. Um, you're just kind of a, a low-tier villain like like Fume Hood. So Victoria, though, doesn't really buy this narrative of of being without remorse about anything, doesn't buy this story that Fume Hood's telling herself. And then Fume Hood admits that she does feel remorse about getting some of her friends into hard drugs, um, but doesn't really feel remorse about the pregnant woman's uh, baby. Victoria reiterates that the community hero gig that, that Fume Hood would like to pursue would actually be a good fit and that she should keep trying. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about this for, for a little bit. Um, I mean, we could talk about this entire conversation for like an hour if we wanted to, but my first initial reaction to, to hearing this, to hearing her say, no, I don't have remorse for the woman's baby I killed is like, that was her fault. She was stupid. Um, your initial reaction to that is like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, what, what is, what is your problem? How could you not feel bad for that? But, but as we learn more about her, we learn that she does feel bad for mistakes that she's made. She does feel remorse. It's just not the things that we have decided she should feel remorse for. Is that good? I don't, I don't know. I agree with Victoria that she should probably stop calling the lady stupid. Um, but the thing is, whatever regrets and remorse that she has, wherever it's focused, it led her to try to make this change in herself. It led her to attempt to redefine herself, to become a hero, to create this community service hero thing. And that's that's worth something. And I think Victoria sees that in her. And, and I, I, really, I really like Victoria. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she displays this incredible patience and just ability to listen and not you know she, she's not s- sitting there going you you don't you really you don't care about the about the woman's baby you know she's she's just kind of sitting there listening almost as if she picked up some skills from somebody who she spent a lot of time with <laughs> in the asylum um, yeah, yeah yeah and can we just say how like how diametrically opposed this is to the glory girl we saw in in worm um, mm-hmm. I went back and read her interlude chapter in preparation for this, and it is it is striking how different this person is. Like, you would never use the word patience to describe the glory girl of the of the start of that story. Never. Yeah. And it, how much she's changed is is remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Also, I really like this one this one part. Um, they're they're talking about hate and blame again and and fume hood says blame seems like something like too small a word for what crystal was saying and victoria's response is blame can be big i said blame has led to the ruin of nations and that's true and smart and fitting with everything that's happening with victoria right now yeah the the fact that she says stuff like this really casts her as this very thoughtful almost scholarly person which again contrasts a lot with the the cape who like slammed down to the street hard enough to crack the street just to show off yeah Yeah. through through pieces of a bank around for no reason yeah Yeah, so yeah so they meet with the cops on the scene uh, who victoria finds haven't really talked to the capes at all and one of the one of these cops the one with the mustache is saying uh, they've got the eye thing and the masks. One doesn't have eyes at all. 
he has these crystals. He pulled one out of the top of his head earlier and it made a wet sound. It was in so deep it should have been inside his brain. They're people, I said again. It's disconcerting, the man said. Yeah, and I think it's – this is a really interesting comment. I think it's really easy to just look at the end part of the comment at at his uncomfortableness with crystal clear as a kind of deformed cape and, and read into their fear of that. And that's – I don't think that's something by itself inherently new to the world. Like I think people have been uncomfortable around deformed parahumans since the beginning, right? And they've always kind of been ostracized. But that's not all this guy says. He also says they've got the eye thing and the mask. So uh, Tempera's colored eyes and just the fact that they're wearing masks is enough to make this guy uncomfortable now. And that, that is different. That, like, this idea that I don't even want to deal with these people, any of them. Not just the guy with the weird crystal brain, any of them. Yeah, and it, it, it's somewhat understandable. Like, it's something you don't think about. But, like, if you're, like, at the mall and there's somebody wearing a mask forget for a moment that we don't live in a world with superheroes you would be freaked out even if you did live in a world with superheroes though you'd be like okay there's a person with a mask (laughs) like it's it's not it's not a thing you're comfortable with you know it's not it's not normal yeah so crystal clear shows up and says an attack is imminent two impacts victoria heads to where jasper is slowly inching the bus toward the building through the milling crowd and finally we get the answer to what we've been wondering Victoria uses her aura and clears a path for the bus and for herself. Yeah, and and yeah, that there it is. There's your answer. And like we've seen her do a couple times already, she uses it because she has to, because there's no one else capable of doing this, and she has to step up. Yep. Um, yeah. So the other um, the, the other high schoolers who she's with notice a dude in disguise in the midst of the crowd start vibrating intensely until he explodes showering the area with grizzle uh she throws up her force field to cover jasper and possibly the others it's ambiguous whether this implies she's somehow projecting her skin tight force field or if it just means she's interposing her body between them and the explosion Uh, but anyway the spray of flesh is enough to knock down her force field yeah and this is one of those things that i don't think i consciously noticed on my first read through um like i didn't think about that the fact that how's that work how do you block two windows with your arm just your arm um and i think it's it's wild boat showing his cards without really showing his cards it's clever i like it yeah i mean i i remember people were arguing about this in the reddit thread after this chapter was posted basically just going back and forth over you know you know it says she threw up her arm that could just mean she shielded him with her arm and then other people are you know more correctly i think saying no, she she throws your force field out, uh, but yeah, we'll 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 get some clarity on that later. Man, I can't wait to be reading this thing live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here we have um, the people over the square of grass around the fountain on the sidewalks and the streets surrounding the explosion all stood calm, streaked with blood. They looked down, every single head turning left, then turning right, all in unison. And I just freaking love this visual right here. <laughs> This is a weird-ass power, Matt. This is really weird. I think we'll talk more about Kingdom Come uh, in a bit when Victoria fights them, um, him, it, I don't know. Um, But but I do do find it very fitting that the first conflict of our story, we have the masses literally made into the enemy. (laughs) 
<laughs> like yeah. it's something that Victoria was worried about from the very beginning, and it doesn't happen quite like she was expecting. Um, but she thought she was going to have to to deal with with angry humans here, and she is. Yeah, right. It's a it's, it's worst case scenario. So now a logging truck with a reinforced sort of ram on the front shows up, barreling for the building, uh, because Victoria knows that the capes are the good capes are like right on the other side of that door. Victoria orders Jasper to ram the logging truck, which I think is the point when her decisions are less unimpeachable. But anyway, um, trusting you, Jasper said, and the bus picked up speed. You shouldn't. I thought I had one partial glimpse of the inside of the truck, multiple costumes, and then the impact. It's game time, Matt. Yep. I, I know we do this a lot on the podcast, but let's do it again here. Let's look at how Wildbow fits character moments into action beats. We're, we're about to go headlong into the first action scene of the book. Here it is. And we stop to have some of Victoria's issues poke through. You shouldn't. She, she doesn't elaborate on that. She doesn't think about specifically why he shouldn't trust her. Um, it's almost just like an automatic subconscious response that pops into her head as this thing goes. Uh, Victoria is a, is, it's very complicated, Matt. Very yeah, I feel like this decision is a... I mean, she doesn't have a lot of time to think about it. And and we, we've seen this thing where there's a struggle between the old Victoria, who probably would have just unhesitatingly said, ram the bus, or, right. or ram, ram, ram the truck without any kind of flinch, and the new Victoria, who's trying to be like measured and patient and thoughtful. and and um, But I think the the impulse to to act wins out here specifically because she knows that innocent people are going to be badly injured or killed if she doesn't. Um, but it's, it's a decision that she's not comfortable with. I, I think that's how I read it anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So one dot four begins. Victoria throws herself bodily between the colliding vehicles, kind of tries to claw and shove them apart in such a way that her friends don't die. The plan does push the truck off course and leaves Victoria lying face down on the road with road rash. Yeah, and I love the word usage here, Matt. She's she's not just like pushing and fighting the truck, she's clawing at it. It conveys this this animalistic desperation in her actions. She's not carefully planning. This is not rationally making decisions and executing plans. This is not Taylor's toolbox. It's just desperation. Yeah, it's almost reflexive. I mean, she yeah. thinks it, it was impossible to process it, which kind of, to me, speaks of that kind of like autonomic response, basically, of, of your body trying to just get through something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she hears the enemies checking in with each other. We've got Blindside, Snag, uh, a brute who we later find out is Lord Floss. Um, and her eyes are forced away from Blindside. Yeah, so this is this is one of the points where I really expected to possibly see some of our Parahumans Online chat room team people show up, and of course they didn't. Uh, there's no indication that any of these people are related to those guys in any way um, yet, if if there ever is any connection, but not yet. Um, and I'm curious if you thought that they would show up here. I'm curious what what your thought was moving into this this arc. Did you expect? to see those guys in these chapters? I was certainly attentively paying attention to details of characters. Um, I, I think um, 
I would have been surprised if any of these specific characters were those were those chat room characters simply because um, we it, it would have it would have felt like something was missing like, like there was a step missing. Um, I'm not sure if I can explain the thought process there exactly, but um, I was uh, yeah. I mean, I, I was on the lookout for this character. Certainly, I was I was like you said, trying to trying to read into details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like we talked about at the top, I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm glad we kept yeah. this. This is Victoria's show, at least for the first yeah. arc. Right. Uh, yeah. So then they also have two more with them. We have Nursery and Kingdom Come, uh, who are also there. Kingdom Come is, of course, the one who took everybody over. Crystal Clear and Fume Hood try to shoot at the baddies, but the brute laughs it off. We soon learn uh, this is Lord of Loss, a known badass, A-lister, brute breaker hybrid, the breaker element amplifying the brute power over time. Yeah, like Lord of Loss and Kid Win are basically like Iceland and Greenland in human form. <laughs> I uh, I like that. Uh, so yeah, he Lord of Loss sounds Kidwin. yeah. So Lord of Loss sounds like a nice enough villain. Actually, he he treats Victoria with consideration and orders Blindside to watch her, and then he lets on that the clients hired them to capture Fumehood. Yeah, and this is the first real indication that the, these villains aren't here for really super nefarious reasons. I think we learn much more about this a little bit later and then definitely in the interlude uh, to the to the extent that it kind of reshapes the entire encounter. But it struck me as, as odd when I first read it. And it also kind of serves as a, a reminder to the readers that in this world, the, those villain hero lines aren't solid. Um, there, there's There's gray mixed in with villains and and you have good villains and bad heroes and all this and it's like remember this is this is the worm world these exist um and i think this is something that's specifically important to reinforce when we've when we're living in the head of a former hero that behaved not very heroically yeah that's, that's a great point yeah yeah we see lord of loss go out of his way to make sure victoria is okay and a little bit we see kingdom come having this very sort of cordial civilized conversation with the bureaucrat from the city trying trying to persuade her of something not not really using her threats or strong arm tactics um you know snags does seem like kind of an asshole honestly but the, the other ones i think come off come off pretty well yeah he's just mad his name is snag yeah yeah and he's got weird arms yeah um so yeah, they, they have to get into the building and then we have a. Uh, this would be why I'm here, Nursery said, her voice soft. She began humming, and it was a lullaby of some uh, lullaby sort of hum. A music box, sort of chiming, joined the humming. Fuck that shit, Blindside said. I was the closest person to them as they stood somewhere near me. I wasn't sure if Blindside was talking to me. Nah, he's not. Uh, <laughs> Nursery more or less burrows into the building with her shaker power that creepifies the building. Don't worry, we'll get there. Good, because I'm... Um... Freaking the fuck out. Yep, yep, yep. So Victoria's a bit triggered by Blindside asking, if I roll you onto your back, will it kill you? And it basically it reminds her of all the times when uh, when people would sort of give her like a sh- show, show concern for her well-being, but only so they could sort of feel okay about the fact that they didn't really care about her well-being too much. Yeah, and this this part got me thinking, and it's kind of amazing that in a podcast – 
that we've done about a story about trauma, I can't think of a specific example where you and I have used the phrase post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't think we've ever actually used that phrase, but I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Like a simple non-connected phrase plunges Victoria back into a trauma memory and she almost loses it. And that is PTSD. That's what it does. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I think, I, I don't know, me, I personally usually mean something along those lines almost every time I say trauma because I think PTSD is sort of the medicalization yeah, of that concept. Yeah. I just thought it was um, but, weird we never used that term. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And, and it certainly has its own connotations. And, and certainly when someone says a phrase that just kind of reminds you of something completely different and it causes you to freak out about it, that's classic. Yeah, that's classic PTSD. So Victoria manages to fight to her feet, finds that she can't really move to attack blindside effectively. She can't look at them, can't point at them, can't touch them. Yeah, this guy's power is really interesting. Um, I, I said guy there, but I don't know if we actually know. Um, like, I think Victoria specifically says she can't tell by their voice. And because no one can look at them, there's no way of determining, um, which is a really interesting detail that, that I like. Yeah, I uh, I thought it was a guy too, and now I'm trying to remember if I thought that because because Prancer knows if it's a guy, and I'm back propagating that knowledge, but now yeah. I'm just completely unsure. Um, yeah, so uh, we have uh, uh, Victoria's talking to to Blindside, and and Blindside tries to kind of say what the plan is, like yeah, that they want to get. Fume hood, mostly unharmed. The woman who lost her kid wants to have words with her, shout at her, make her feel bad. She and some others paid a lot of money to make it happen. Then we drop her back off somewhere near here and drive off. So that's what he says. That's what they say the plan is. But that's a lie. Victoria says that the woman died during the gold morning, right? So. Yeah, assuming Victoria is telling the truth and not bluffing, which I right. think she probably is, yeah. Yeah, so th- this is interesting. Like. <sighs> I, I I sat with this for a while because I what so one of them's lying <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> I, it's like what motivation would Victoria have for lying well not not much really um what motivation would blindside have for lying just to make because uh, at this point they still think she's a civilian so it's like just to make a civilian feel a little bit better I I, I don't I don't know. It's also possible Blindside was lied too about yeah, what the mission was really that's about. True. That's true. Yeah. I hadn't thought so of blind, that option. That's probably the best one. It's, it's I don't know. I mean it it's you know, it's it fits, but I don't know if I I don't know if I buy that either. So we'll, we'll just have to see. So Blindside turns out to be not very nice as they try to smash Victoria's face in with a baseball bat. She's saved by her force field, of course, and then she fights back and tries a couple of tricks making headway by firing her gun near Blindside's head and hurting their hearing, then hitting them with the aura. Um, She hits them with her heavy PRT vest, and Blindside seems to go down. Uh, She tries to check that Blindside is okay, but can't. (laughs) Yeah. This, This fight is really cool, and I think it reminds us that when it comes to interesting powers and how those powers interact in a combat situation... Wildbow is still the king. Um, you, you think after like a million and a half words of this, he'd be running short of ideas, but uh, nope, nope. <laughs> nope, not at all. I love, I love the detail about her neck and how it interacts with this power that like 
he can force people to break their necks just by positioning himself in certain ways. Um, and, and Victoria's like internal thought of, is that it seems like he's speaking from experience with that. Like it's, it's this really deadly detail that I, I really appreciated. And yeah. the moment when she used her aura to awe him away to get the advantage in the battle is really telling to me. And Victoria can fly. She's strong. She's got that force field, but that aura might be like one of the strongest things she can do. Like that's like emotional manipulation we've seen in, in these kind of fights is really key. Yeah. I think we're going to get to this more when we talk about her trigger event later on, but Victoria's powers um, are centered around this concept of her being intimidating. The, 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 the aura itself is intimidation um, but also like what's interesting about her brute power is that she's like, if you were blindside fighting her, you would be really confused actually, because you'd be <laughs> like, okay, I just hit her in the face with a baseball bat. Nothing happened. Mm-hmm. I hit her like a couple more times with a baseball bat. Nothing happened. Why doesn't she just jump on me and, and, or, or like, like she's invulnerable. And the truth is she's not invulnerable. Right. That's, that's the cool thing here is she, her, her invulnerability is very quirky, but if she fights intelligently, her opponent's won't necessarily know that in yeah. fact the the opponents who do know that have her at a severe disadvantage um so that's that's very interesting quality of this power absolutely yeah yeah so victoria enlists jasper to head into the building and asks if asks him if this is a setup jasper admits that the plan was to stick her with some objective observers and see how she handled the situation but this wasn't supposed to go south especially not this badly she tells them to find a safe spot, and then she heads off alone. Crystal Clear signals her a direction to head in. Yeah, and th- I think this is where we see her paranoia start to pay off a little bit, right? She was right to suspect that this whole thing was a test or something. Um, and it's, it's not entirely like they weren't expecting this specifically to happen, but they were testing her. And it, it kind of shows that even as you're trying to, to redefine yourself and start fresh and, and move forward – the things that happen to you still define you. And even if they don't define you to yourself, they do to other people and she can't move beyond that. And, um, it's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. So we head into 1.5. Victoria peeks in on the auditorium, which is mostly full of kingdom comes thralls. One of them, the mustachioed cop is talking to the district rep, trying to negotiate a path forward, basically wanting her to give up fumehood in exchange for a kind of protection. Yeah, and I think this is the first time that that Kingdom Come mentions the pressure cooker reasoning for why they did this, that they're here because tension is building in this world and we need to release it in some way. So we're going to do it by hurting a controversial person. Um, I think we'll talk about whether this makes sense logically in a bit, but um, that's the reasoning at least. And and, and we it turns out that he's being honest there. Yeah, it, it's interesting because this, smacks of a complicated thinker you know mastermind scheme right it's it's not it's not just revenge it's like oh this is just one of 15 dominoes actually yeah yeah um so kingdom come notices uh notices victoria sneaking around and sends a bunch of guys with guns to go deal with her victoria finds that all she has to go on here are her old combat instincts which she's trying to pull away from still she manages to calm herself down yeah, I really love I love this. I love the detail and and the interesting idea around the fact that she has no peer or mentor to draw from. 
no one to base her actions off except for herself. She's a person trying to change. She's suffering from trauma. She has PTSD. She she has guilt and a whole lot of blame. And she doesn't have anyone to mirror herself off of. Like, like it, it's really interesting, like, as it works as a literal combat thing, but also just as a human being. Um, and I, it's, it's telling that she mentions Alexandria here, the, the person who clo- most closely matches her power rise, but... Also, she admits that she's much more vulnerable in reality than Alexandria, so she can't really map herself off of her. And so, like, there's this whole back and forth about, like, she has no one to to be a mentor with her combat skills, and then you can extrapolate that out to life skills, right? Like, like her her defining herself. She has no role model, and she has no one to help her to to what what is what is being a good person in this world look like what is what is transforming yourself into a good person look after the end of the world and she has there's no example she's like kind of just floating on her own and has no idea what to do yeah that's a great point she draws the direct comparison to how jasper could like go to the shooting range and i would even extend it to say like jasper could join the military and he would join this um you know this old and, and well-established peerage and, and hierarchy of, of how to turn your body into this specific thing, how to turn your, your mind and your yourself into this specific thing. Um, and, and find heroes in that framework to use as role models, et cetera. Whereas like you just said, the, the Victoria at, at best has like, Maybe there's some cape she could find to look up to, but she doesn't seem to have anybody. Like, there's nobody that comes to mind. She thinks of Alexandria, but not in context of being someone who she wants to emulate personality-wise. Yeah, because that's uh, a terrible person to emulate, yeah. Yeah, I don't think she has anybody. Like, certainly no one that comes into her mind during this whole arc as like, you know what, you know who is a real hero who I want to be like? Um like just the power of having a role model, I think is something that I've, this is one of these, this is one of those things where like at an, at an embarrassingly late age, you realize the truth and power of a cliche. And there was some point in time that I was like, Oh, I, I get it. I get the concept of role models and why people talk about role models as being important. It's because if you don't have a role model, you don't know what to do. Like you can't calibrate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like at whatever it is you're doing, unless you have some other human to look at and be like, oh, that's how I should do it. Your your brain has a really hard time figuring it out. I think that's where she is. She's kind of stuck. She's lost. Yeah. And it's it's completely uncharted territory. Like there, there's like even even if you look like even the idea of of modeling yourself out of some of the strongest heroes we saw in Worm, like take Chevalier and say, I'm going to be like Chevalier. Chevalier's never had to go through the stuff that that victoria is going through right now chevalier mm-hmm. could not understand the depth of the trauma that victoria has had to deal with so just modeling yourself off of of his behavior is great but it doesn't it doesn't help you find a way to to rediscover yourself to rediscover your identity it's just not useful she yeah it's it's yeah there's, it, it's it, it's not a role model that serves what she needs right right, right. now yeah. So she needs to sneak away and she concedes to herself that she'll need to use her flight to do it. So she hovers, basically. She kind of ninjas around the room and gently takes down all the guys that come after her, 
getting rid of their guns. She eventually gives up on this fight and just flies up through the ceiling. Victoria thinks about the guidelines for dealing with brutes, and for a while the narration gets lost in the reverie of her study sessions with Dean, with Gallant. And, and she reminisces about this this uh, conversation, this this moment where she said, brutes have a way of making you deal with them. They, they can only be ignored for so long. She goes all the way to reminiscing about their first night together, which then leads to her thinking about how Amy realized something was up, and then she's completely derailed. And, and she's forced to then think, I pushed it all out of my mind. It wasn't the time for that anyway. I was prone to getting lost in thought even though it sometimes felt like every path led to the same regrettable destination. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm forced to make the Taylor comparison here of just saying Taylor never got lost in thought, <laughs> especially not in the middle of a battle. No. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a remarkable, like it's, it was really interesting to watch her. She's, she just smashed up through a roof, evading people and, and like hunting around for baddies in a building. And here she just kind of like goes into a, she kind of spaces out. Like, I wonder what she looks like right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great, a great call and, and, and a great comparison. You're absolutely right that Taylor, the mission was first always. So she would never space out during the mission because mm. that's what mattered. Um, I, I, I'm really fascinated by this idea that her trauma is so fresh and so ever present that a good, happy memory that even skirts near a memory of Amy, even tangentially, like completely shuts her down. And and I love like how the writing doles that out to us too. Like it's this really touching memory. It's like adorable in all the right ways. It also like ties back to she's dealing with brutes. And I, I love the connection of they can only be ignored for so long, which is like, Hey, 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 Victoria, your emotions can only be ignored for so long. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but like, she's like, I laugh at that, which had been the tip off for Amy to realize something was up. She'd, boom, her breathing is fucked. Her chest hurts. She's consciously like trying to work back to just saying, okay, numbers, labels, um, uh, d- d- parsing things out as data and not emotions. Like, get emotions go away. And, it, going back to that imagery she brought up herself, she's just treading water. And each memory, each hint at a memory is another pushback underwater. Yep, yep. Um, I, it's it's very, very interesting uh, development. Yeah, so she moves on into Nursery's Nursery, Nursery's Shaker Domain. The walls become gray and dusty rose shades, uneven paint, a chorus of hums joined by discordant music box sounds. As she heads deeper into the shaker effect, she sees toys, pictures, nursery decor, a pram with a stain on the bottom. Time for another exciting episode of Wild Bo's Horror Hour. This week, <laughs> creepy nurseries and scary cape babies. Excellent. Uh, so she sees Snag is there with nursery, and he is a huge guy with super long arms, tinker creations apparently. Nursery and Snag argue, uh, with Snag pushing her to hurry up, and nursery annoyed that he keeps interrupting. She seems quite confident in the integrity of her sanctuary. And then uh, as Victoria approaches, she says, Wake up, she said. What? I asked. Wake up, sweetie. The crib, a little red wagon with blankets heaped over it, and a carriage nearby jumped, rattling as if something had moved within. I heard wet sounds. Throughout the hazy altered space, the meaty squelching started to overtake the background hums. 
I stopped in my tracks. Things moved beneath the blankets. She still hadn't budged. I turned around and ran. Fuck this. (laughs) (laughs) Victoria noping the fuck out of the scary baby room is the best moment in this book so far. Yeah. Bar none. Um, I love it. But it's also instinctually Victoria defining, right? Like she, like she is not going to like, this is new Victoria. She's not going to rush long, rush headlong into the situation. She, this is like, Nope, don't need to deal with this. I'm getting the hell out of here. Um, it's great. It's really great. Yeah. Yeah. So she runs and finds some of her high school troopers holed up behind a booby trap door. Then snag grabs her and pulls it through a wall and slams her with an emotional attack, which, which she describes as a slap on an open wound. Yeah, and this is, I think, when 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 we realize that we've kind of been primed for this to happen since the chapter started. Beat after beat of Victoria barely managing to maintain her composures as, as memories keep flooding back into her. She's been treading water this whole time, and this time a giant metal arm <laughs> pushed her under and, and held <laughs> her under. Yeah, yeah. So 1.6, Victoria controls herself enough to flee rather than pulverize the man. She gets away from Snag, but is overwhelmed by feelings of loss. Yeah, and I think this is another moment where we see de-escalation as a kind of a fundamental trait of Victoria. She's in this moment. She, she At the end of the last chapter, she worries that these memories will send her spiraling and she'll end up hurting or killing this guy. But instead, she just leaves. And you see the thought process. You see her go, her go fight or flight. And she says, fight? No, I might kill him fly then and leaves and that's de-escalation that's realizing you're in a bad situation you need to get out of it yeah it shows a lot of self-awareness yeah um yeah so um basically sort of you get the sense that she was primed to think about dean from the reverie she just had but now she's recalling the immediate aftermath of the leviathan attack where she lost two blood relatives and was then told that Dean was dying as well. And instead of going to him, she looked for Panacea. Yeah, and she couldn't find her. And the nuances between Amy and Victoria's relationship are kind of still slowly revealing themselves, right? Like, I wonder... She she chose instead to look for Amy, probably to... Amy, come heal him. Like, heal him, please. Um, But she doesn't find her in time. And how much how much of their relationship was driven by that anger and possibly blame um blaming herself for not being there blaming amy for not being there when she needed her to be there to heal like there's there's so much nuance wrapped up in this the relationship between these two even before you put in the fact that her sister turned her into a monster um and i i think it's going to be really interesting seeing this relationship explored yeah, I'd like to imagine that Amy was uh, um, torturing uh, Taylor in her hospital bed while Victoria was looking for her, just that's to a, sort of twi- twist the knife narratively. That's very, very possible, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when she finally does go to Dean, it's too late. Uh, he, he's He's gone, I think. And she can't even really show her devastation because his parents are there and they're keeping it together. And it just it would feel really inappropriate to her. So so she goes from this to going back home, dealing with her father's brain damage and Amy's apparent sudden slipping away. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so we see in Victoria a trend that I think we're going to hit a little later on that, that she has to keep her emotions bottled up. She can't let them slip. She's got to keep a good face. Her boyfriend just died, but she can't cry because his parents aren't. She's got to be strong, got to be the hero. And so these emotions just kind of keep boiling over. And and we go back to that pressure cooker we're talking about, right? Like the world right now is a pressure cooker and we need to release some of that pressure or things are going to explode. And hey, maybe Victoria is just like the world. She's a pressure cooker and she's got to find a way to release some of this stuff or she's going to explode. And And I think we're seeing part of that right now getting to a point where it's just there's too much pressure. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Um, yeah, so she tries to tear the trap people out of the room that they're in, but then Snag attacks again, this time through a window. He hits her with a lesser emotional attack, and she remembers her mom telling her that she's proud of her for taking an injury doing cape stuff. Uh, mother of the year, right here. Yeah, and I like this. Like, this is We're starting to really get the idea that the issues that Victoria has are not just related to what Amy did to her, that she's got a lot of problems. And a lot of them are centered around her relationship with her mother and uh, her mother's, um, let's call it questionable decision-making processes that I think we'll, we'll cover in a couple chapters. Yeah, I think from, from what we knew of Victoria when we first met her in, in Worm, our first assessment would have been like, oh, this this screwed up Kate's family. Like, that that was before we got all this extra stuff loaded on top of stuff. But, like, we've always known that she had this screwed up Kate family. So, yeah, yeah I think we're going to get into that. So she fights off Snag with uh, a bed. Blindside and Nursery approach from down the hall. And Snag tries to pull her through the floor. She finally rips off his tinker arm. And when she does this, it's emotions battery detonates. And it hits her even harder than anything else. And and this puts her back into what I guess we can say is her darkest place, where she's remembering months and years of seeing Double, one eye on the computer screen beside me, watching the time, looking for chat notifications, one eye on the television, one eye on the door, uh, which is a wonderful bit of subtle body horror reminding us that she has probably a whole bunch of eyes looking in different directions. So good. It's so good. She remembers her family missing scheduled visits and herself becoming desperate and and getting to the point where she just kind of snaps and she pushes out with her aura as hard as I could, as far as I could. And then that line is followed with, I pushed out with my aura as hard as I could, as far as I could. I, I love that. I love the repetition and the tense change. Um, and I it's just so perfect and it successfully like gets us truly into what Victoria's real state of mind is not the one that she displays, but the real one. And in this moment, in this fight, Victoria is not here. She's back at that hospital. She is that giant deformed blob with no power to help herself and no one to love her. And so just like she did back then, she, she explodes outward with her emotions. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, though, she comes back to herself, and Jasper and the other kids are there. And Victoria knows that they've seen her use her power and that she's lost her job. Yeah, now they're all terrified of her, right? Because she she reminds us of that uh, that thing about her aura, that the aura is intimidation or awe, or if, if you like the person, 
Um, but if you don't like them, it is just perceived as fear. And I really like this idea, this idea of things like this are based on your perception of the person, then their emotions, either uh, literally or through cape powers, is perceived differently as well. Yeah, right. I mean, we, we were just talking about Alexandria. Alexandria is is a figure of awe if you think she's a hero, and she's a figure of fear if you actually know what she's about. Yep. So um, Victoria heads outside with the four capes, and they're quickly met by Lord of Loss, looking like a giant rhino centaur with a lance and shield. Holy shit! This dude is so awesome. Yeah, I love the visual description. Yeah. I, I actually, I don't know if I've seen any fan art for it, uh, but I would love some. Yeah. So, so the capes attack him. Victoria pretty much going all out. She, I, I'm not sure if I, if, how to interpret. Like, is she, is she losing control? Like, is she just kind of losing it? And because she's like, she's going really hard against him. Um, yeah. Which is kind of in contrast to the kind of patience she was showing before. I, I think she is. I, I think we kind of revert back to that animalistic language that wild Bill used earlier when Victoria was trying to prevent the buses from crashing into each other. Like, like she, she was clawing at the bus at that point, but that was, that was desperation and going all out in the attempts of stopping violence. This is desperation and going all the out in, in attempts of causing it. Like wild Bill says she tore at strips, peeling away at him. She was peeling away at him. And I, I wonder like, like, and I know they're talking about, like, I think they're specifically talking about the paint that's on him or something. Like, I don't think she's literally ripping pieces of his body off, but she, I think, yes, yeah, she's going all out. And, um, uh, th- this, this line, I could do this. I needed to do this. Like, she is now in a point where she has to win. She has to win this. She cannot lose because she's just suffered this horrible emotional setback. And yeah, she's kind of gone a little crazy. Mm hmm. Yeah. But uh, then, in the midst of this battle, there's a crack, and Fume Hood is down, shot. Lord Loss immediately aborts the mission, tells her this wasn't the plan, and the shooter is captured and found to be a protester with a hunting rifle. Yeah, we talked about the old uh, cops and robbers game that the capes played a lot during the course of our, our analysis of Worm, and I think for a lot of this battle uh victoria's own personal demons aside that really seems to be what the people are doing here they're they're not really trying to hurt each other they're they're being careful they're controlling their powers no one in the battle no one up to this point has been seriously hurt from what we understand um it's very much that old villain hero cops and robbers fighting that that we saw at the beginning of worm and then through the middle of this fight comes that crack. A civilian with a gun, not not a person with a power, not a trained soldier, just a guy with a hunting rifle. And he doesn't shoot at the giant centaur with the armor and weapons or the flying glowing girl that's literally trying to tear at him. Um, no, he attacks Fume Hood, the villain cape who had the audacity to try and move on from their past. And I think this is this is the part that Victoria feared most, right? Not the attack that comes from a cape on a mission in front of her, but the one that comes from the people that she's there to kind of protect. And I think this is, this is the world now. This is what it is now. And it's, I love how we close this chapter with, with Fume Hood saying not a good day. It was definitely not a good day. Yeah. And, uh, and then as 1.7 opens, we've skipped a bit of time. It's now the evening of that day 
and Victoria is resting as the sun sets. She's caked in grime and Tempera's paint and incompletely cleaned blood. The situation is settled down. Gilpatrick is there and he comes to talk to her, or rather he kind of awkwardly vamps while she gives him a report on how his child soldiers performed. Finally, though, he does get around uh, to firing her. Very regretful that things played out this way. Yeah, and as much as you want to be mad at Gilpatrick, that he's sort of kind of set her up here, you do understand him. He's He's got people he needs to answer to as well. He was kind of in this lose-lose situation, and his regret feels genuine here. I, I like that you described it as vamping, because I think I think this part, this interaction between them is actually really, really well written. There's some real pacing shifts as the conversation goes on. It starts with Victoria talking a lot and and Gilpatrick giving like one line answers. Then there's this awkward pause, which Victoria says she's intentionally creating to give him the opportunity to uh, shift to what he really wants to talk about. Um, but he's not ready yet. So the conversation shifts now and it's him talking in long paragraphs and her giving one line answers because he's like building or, or avoiding getting to the thing he knows he has to say. And that, that makes, that makes the appearance that his regret here is, is actually genuine. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, so they conclude their talk and at the end of it, she flies away. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't want to understate the importance of the fact that she flies away. Um, for the first che- three chapters, we, we saw Victoria as a person who didn't even acknowledge that her powers existed. And then she was forced to use them. But even then, she specifically mentioned how much she hated flying, right? Because, like, flying, like, her muscle movement was something that was ruined by her turning into Blob, and it, it's tainted now. Um, so she only used it when she had to. She doesn't need to use it here. She doesn't have to use her powers here. She just chooses to. And, and to me, that's, that's, we're seeing a Victoria that's kind of given up on separating the human and the parahuman sides of herself, right? Yeah. I absolutely agree that she's, she's shrugging off this idea of, of like, I'm going to, to try really hard to pretend, not pretend, but to, to live as though she doesn't have powers. Um, she's, she's just like, all right, I've, I've lost my job as a normal person and I'm just going to literally fly away now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it works perfectly. So she flies, um, very fittingly all the way to the get together at her mom's house. We've picked up along the way that her dad is uh, living with Victoria. Uh, so it's obvious that, uh, her mom and dad are separating, but getting along apparently. Yeah. I think this is something that was hinted at in Worm, but not confirmed, um, there was indications that the two of them were not getting along well. Uh, Carol did not take losing both of her daughters in one fell swoop very well. So it, you can see that why that would have possibly yeah. irreparably damaged their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So her mom meets her at the fence to talk to her, but in the background, it's clear that people are getting tense as they notice she's here. Her dad and Crystal, she realizes that Amy is in the house. Oh, man. This scene is really rough. Um, I really enjoy the staging and the writing here, though. We Victoria swoops in after this really bad day, and she puts her hands on the top of the fence, which is this, like, perfect, like, suburban, classic, nuclear family kind of imagery, right? Like, it's, like, people just hanging out at a barbecue, and she's watching, resting on a fence, and, and you see her smile at their happiness. And then her mom approaches, and we see something's not quite right. 
And when Victoria says it's been a bad day, her mom gets visibly upset. And I love, love the detail here because we're specifically pointed out that the light source is behind Carol. So it's dark everywhere. The light source is behind Carol. So there's no light on her face. And yet Victoria can tell that her expression changes almost as if it's such a big worry that, that this, that this realization that she's already had a bad day and maybe dealing with her sister right now is not a good thing is so transparent that you can even see it without light. And then her father's subtle change and then crystal and then holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she, yeah, she, she backs away from her mom and her mom tries to follow her, tries to, claim that she didn't know Victoria would be caught off guard by this. Victoria is far more shaken than we saw her even after the emotional attacks. She's practically incoherent here. She tells her mom that she can't trust her, can't ever come to this house again. Her dad is culpable too because he knew and she'll have to push him away as well. Only Crystal seems to get the situation and she's visibly using her power to keep the door shut, which is, uh, I guess exonerating her a bit. Um, and Victoria kind of unloads on her. She says, uh, how can you have not been there, missed visits, or come to the visit and spend more time talking to doctors than to me because it was hard to be around me? How can you have come to see me then and have had to avert your eyes mid-conversation with me and found that hard and not realize that I had to live it for two years and had that be a million times harder for me? I know it was hard, honey. I get it. I really do. But you can't dwell on the past. It's not good for you. You can't carry that. You say that. When you still sleep with the lights on, I said. It was her turn to not have words. That's different, she said finally. She didn't say how it was different. Oh, boy. <laughs> so let's yeah. talk about this uh, forever. Um, so I really like this this idea of that's different. And this idea that that in this world we have all these people and there's all this talk of fresh starts and we want to start over and we need to move on from the past but it, it's very outwardly focused it's people telling other people you need to move on and when it comes to dealing with your own issues in the past and dealing with your own personal stuff that's different and i really like that idea that that, that, that like it's very easy to sit there and say, you need to find a way to move on from this. You need to find a way past this when you're incapable of doing that yourself. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing a lot here is like, we, we want to make a fresh start. We want to do this, but we still got to be mad at those capes because it's those capes fault. Okay. We want to start over, but well, but even like the amnesty, they did bad things. So we got to, well, what, what they're doing good things now. Well, no, but that doesn't make up for their bad. And it's like, you're, it's like, you're stuck, you're stuck. And you can't see past yourself in those moments. And I think that's what Carol's representing here. Like she can't understand why it would be so difficult. Like it's, it's one thing to say, no, you can't dwell on the past. You have to move on. It's a whole nother thing to do it. And she seemingly can't see that. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a failure perspective taking because, you know, she's, she's not wrong in saying you can't dwell on the past. It's not good for you. You can't carry that. That's, that's true. It's just also really unhelpful to say to someone in Victoria's situation. Yeah. And I mean, it's just as unhelpful as someone saying like, Hey, what's wrong with you? Just turn the lights off and you yeah. go to bed. Yeah. It's like loser. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's an SNL skit. I, I 
have to find it for you, but they go to a shrink and say they have problems. And he goes, I need to, f- like, I, I just keep doing this. And the th- shrink goes, okay, well, stop it. <laughs> and yeah. so he just keeps saying stop it over and over again. And yeah. it's not helpful at all. And, like, that's the thing with this is, like, Carol sucks here. She really sucks. Like, tra- <laughs> trapping your daughter in this situation and then, like, acting defensively when she's mad at you for it sucks. But you get why she's wanting to do it, right? Like, she she's right to a certain extent. Like, you need to find a way to move past this. It's not good for you. But this is the exact wrong way to do it. It's terrible. Yeah, it's a kind of it's a kind of blindness, which I think is common to the extent of being normal, actually, where she's basically saying, like, look, everyone really wants the family to get back together. I know that Victoria has some issues with Amy, but I'm sure it can all get sorted out if we just sit down and talk about it. And right, it's like, yeah, right. I mean, I you don't understand the magnitude of what's <laughs> what's going on here, mainly. Um but it's an understandable sort of perspective. It's just, it's just missing some pieces. Yeah. Well, and we see in the, the, the quote that you, you pulled that it's not, her issues aren't just with Amy. It's like, Carol, your, your daughter has some issues with you too. And like, how can you not have been, how can you have not been there, missed visits or come to visit me and spent more time talking to doctors? Like, yes, she's upset with Amy. Yes she she blames and hates amy and that relationship is far from getting to a point where it could ever be repaired but she's got some issues with you too and you're not going to make it all better with a family barbecue yeah yeah basically carol wants to just carol's actually doing something very similar to what victoria is doing where she just wants to move forward yeah and you know what you're right i I was a terrible mom, but let's all, let's all just right. have this barbecue right. and act like nothing's wrong. And if we have, maybe if we have a bunch of barbecues like this, then everything will just be fine. And it's like, yeah, yeah that doesn't work. No, nope. I, I mean, I, I completely get the human impulse to do that. It's very natural. It just doesn't work. Nope. Nope. And we see here that Victoria deescalates again, Matt. She, uh-huh. Instead of fighting, she she leaves. She she says she notices that she's losing control. She notices that she's losing it and decides to remove herself from the situation. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that she's she's trying to leave peacefully and 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 first her mom and then someone else tries to follow her yeah. and it's like that's 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 some boundary crossing right there. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, she 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 walks away and Amy follows her. Um, not that, not that Victoria sees her, but she hears someone chasing her and infers that it must be Amy. And so Victoria lashes out with her power. Uh, I threw my arm back into the side, a backhand swipe. I tore through lawn, through slabs of sidewalk and the edge of the road. Dirt flew across the street alongside clumps of grass and chunks of sidewalk. Uh, and this is enough to uh, drive Amy away. Yeah. And it also confused the hell out of me the first time I read it. How did her delivering a backhand tear into the sidewalk road and lawn? How long is her arm? Yeah. Uh, but I think we'll see exactly what's happening yeah. here, Matt. Her arms. Yeah. yeah. So she goes back to her office and asks Gilpatrick if she can spend the night there. And he lets her and she spends a few hours packing away all her stuff. 
And then uh, we have this moment where she's just standing there in the office, and uh, we get your explanation for that thing you were just talking about. Yep. I stood, dropping blankets to the floor, and walked over to the window. With the cold, the space heater, and the imperfect seal, moisture and fog had collected on it. I reached out toward the window, a foot away from touching it. I turned on my force field. A pause. Then a handprint on the window, in the condensation. Then another. A circular smudge that streaked a naked breast pressed against the glass, moving. Then the mark that couldn't be anything but one half of a face beneath the circular smudge. They moved, and I wasn't asking them to move. The window rattled a bit as it was pushed against. The prints smudged. A fingernail dragged against the glass and produced a high-pitched squeal, almost ear-splitting. So here we finally see her power still sinks of her blob form as the boundaries of her body. All right, let's talk about this for two hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think we, we get the, the pleasure of, of having Wildbow in our Discord every once in a while, so we get to see some sometimes as I'm doing my live tweet, he'll jump in and say something. And he said that this, when he thought up this scene, this is what cemented Victoria as being his protagonist, when he thought of this part right here. And it's really great. The whole time, we're like, we think we have an understanding on who Victoria is and, and what she's going through. And she's trying to move forward and she's trying to, to, to move beyond her trauma, to find her new identity. And little did we know that the thing that she's trying to move on from, the thing that she's trying to escape from, is surrounding her at all times. Like, it, it's there constantly. How how do you move on from this horrible trauma that you experienced when you still carry it with you constantly? Like, how, yeah. how do you do that? Right. It's, uh, I think... I think Lon Sheep's art, uh, yet again, is is perfect here because it was essentially Victoria standing in this golden city looking at her phone, which is presumably the text message from her mom. And in the reflection behind her is this stalking shadow of of her power. Um, I mean, you can view it as a metaphorical uh, you know, the reflection is, is her past, but you can also view it as it, it, the reflection is showing this this um, this force field shade that is that is always that is always there. Every time she uses it, she's reminded of it. Every time she, uh, you know, yeah, pretty much any any time she needs to use her force field, it's it's this thing that's right. surrounding her. Right. Every single time. Every single time she used it in that fight, it was this. Yeah. Yep. And it, I can't I can't get over how smart of an idea this like it is we we talk about like we've talked over and over again about the past and and moving forward and and these ideas and here it is made literal in one person this idea of the conflict between trying to start fresh trying to redefine who you are and being stuck in what happened to you before and it's all in one person here in our protagonist this is it this is this is probably going to be one of the central themes of this entire story. And I look at it right now and I say, I don't know how you ever get over this, knowing that that thing is there. The thing that that it makes you so uncomfortable just thinking about it 
sends you into a, an emotional mess, it is there always. I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. How, I don't know how you. I, I. I can't wait to see her journey. I. I can't wait to see how and if she gets to a place where she's okay. But right now, it's just like, oh my god. Yep. Um. I, I agree with you that I can't wait to see her journey, and I have. Uh, I'm just so excited about it. But uh, for now, she can't sleep, so she sets to doing research on the capes that she faced, and that's pretty much how she spends the night. Uh, you get the impression because as we roll into 1.8, she's she's showered and she notices that the power has come back on, and then she starts looking for a new apartment on online um, because the the housing situation on Gimmel is pretty touchy and and uh, it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. She has lots of missed missed texts on her phone uh, which she ignores and PMs from her mom and from Crystal. She deletes her mom's without looking and she reads Crystal's who explains how her mom pretty much misled everybody about Victoria's comfort level with the situation and indeed with the fact that Amy was going to be there at all. God damn it, Carol. Yeah. She avoids thinking about Crystal's messages and browses the web, noting that uh, something squirrely is going on with somebody named Lachlan Hound. Sorry, Lachlan Hund. Uh, and also that Fumehood is alive. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, and she, she thinks to herself, it felt... It all felt like I was taking a massive backward step, like I was back in the immediate aftermath of Golden Morning. Two legs, two arms, bewildered, emotional. I was bothered, upset. I didn't know what to do with myself. I'd been angry at my parents then, too, for various reasons. Angry at a lot of people and things. I hadn't and didn't want that to define me. It's kind of amazing what one bad day could do on that. Yeah. Like, both for Victoria and, and for the world at large. I think the implications of this day... This this event will will have a lasting effect on everything, and you really feel for Victoria here. She she clearly did put in work to kind of restart her life. She she made a conscious choice to not let her anger define her, and find a way of of living beyond it. And and she makes these choice to be close to capes because she's like we said she thinks they're important and and good people, and she wants to prop up the good ones. She wants to redefine herself, but all it takes after all that work is one really bad day and she feels like she's back at square one. And that's, I mean, that that's true sometimes, especially when you're not dealing with your problem, when you're just coping with your issues, it just takes one bad day. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's a, that's true. I didn't, for some reason, didn't consciously notice this idea of she's basically saying, I feel like I am waking up again from being the blob like that that's how far back she she feels um so eventually though she kind of gets a hold of herself and she reaches out to crystal and asks if they can meet and have have a meal gilpatrick shows up with breakfast and coffee uh the breakfast has egg in it and victoria considers that normally she wouldn't be one to eat egg what could that mean matt um well um, eggs eaten by humans represent loss the primary theme of the story at this point each Chicken believes that its egg is the future, the manifestation of second chances, if you will. The chicken guards the egg with its life, and humans cruelly steal its precious golden treasure for our own consumption. Also, if you crack open a fertilized chicken egg partway through development, you will find something inside that looks very much like Victoria um, in circa Golden Morning. Uh, Finally, humanity has borrowed of the evolution of chicken kind to create a species that exists for little purpose beyond producing protein for our consumption. 
Uh, Victoria rejects this because she rejects the parasitic nature of the entities. Uh, but she chooses to eat the egg and is rewarded immediately by an intrusive flashback to the suffering of using feeding tubes. So yeah. we're just going to move on. We're not going to comment on, on any nope. of that. It's going to move past that. Ladies um, and gentlemen, that's what you call overanalyzing. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so she and Gil talk about a group called Ossuary uh, with an environmental focus. She successfully explains to Gil Patrick why she doesn't want to talk about what's going on, and he heads to his office. Uh, Crystal contacts her and offers to let Victoria stay at her place, which is nice, actually. One thing off my to-do list. I like the progress. Progress was good. So long as I moved forward, I could stay aloft. Uh, yeah, that's that's healthy. I'm fine as long as I don't blink or hesitate or look back for an instant. Uh, Victoria probably yeah, does. Yeah, I, as long as I don't look at my trauma and past, like ever, ever, I'll be fine. Yeah, so Gilpatrick's uh, something to do turned out to be contacting an appropriate adult. For a moment, Victoria's terrified that he's called her mom, but somebody much better steps out of the doorway. It's Mrs. Yamada. Everybody's mom. Yay. The mom of the world. So they hug, and Victoria cries, and then we do. Um, yeah, we, we've talked already about how Victoria was very guarded with her emotions. So I think this beat really means something in the context. Like Victoria did not get to cry when Dean died. And so seeing her cry here means something. And it's only, it's only Yamada that can, can get this out of people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's reinforced here because you know, they, they load her stuff into Mrs. Yamada's car. And as they're talking about the old days, Victoria is talking about these things that were, Really, like, just just hours ago, she she could not face them. Now she's talking about them quite openly, yeah. and she's not she's not shutting down. And she thinks, why was it so much easier to talk about the things that that I couldn't normally even think about like this? Yeah, and I think this is just really just confirmation that Yamada is actually a cape, and getting people to comfortably and safely discuss their issues is her power. And I know what you're thinking that this seems like the opposite of what the shards would want to do and i have one answer to that shut shut up shut up yeah it also seems to be the opposite of what you know wadlow's trying to do with this character but i'm just gonna (laughs) just gonna let you go there shut shut up Uh, okay all right shut shut up um no no, i'm obviously kidding she's just really good at her job yeah right i mean we're just we're seeing we're seeing that therapy is a good thing so we get confirmation that it was Amy who changed Victoria back into her old body, which I think we kind of suspected, um, even reverting her age. So basically she's, like we said earlier, mentally 21, but her, her body is only 19. Yeah, and that goes into, I think, this idea that replace and erase the past, right? Like mm-hmm. we just it just never happened. Get rid of it. Um, and in this effort to move forward, some people want to do that. Some people can't, won't. And uh, it's more of our, our our central conflict here. Yeah, I think we're going to see in just a second that Victoria kind of thinks that Amy was probably like really wanted her to just forget that, forget all that stuff ever happened. Um, yeah. Uh, obviously, that's not how it worked out. But anyway, yeah. So So first, she talks about how she kind of lost all of her agency. She thinks I lost my body two years before Gold Morning. My heart was twisted into something unrecognizable and gold morning hit and and i was controlled in mind 
I didn't have much, but I could make my decisions. I could decide to use my power or not. She took that away from me for a brief time. So yeah, um, that's just our little reference to Taylor um, and how what she did was pretty mean to Victoria here. So apparently Amy then, after reverting her body, suppressed her emotions and asked her what she wanted to be done with her heart, which specifically means like what, how do you want me to go about repairing what I did to your brain? Basically is yeah. my take anyway. Yeah. And, and in this non-emotional, completely rational perspective, Victoria chooses to retain those memories of this year. So when offered a choice, she rationally chooses not to start fresh, not to forgive and forget, but to keep her past and find a way to deal with it. And, and, and like we said over and over again, this is, this is this central conflict in the book, right? Can we move on and start fresh, but still retain our past in some way? And, and what is the difference between remembering the past and holding on to it and being overwhelmed by it? One is honoring where we came from and learning from our mistakes. The other is stagnation. It's the opposite of growth. It's, it's, it's Amy perpetually restoring Victoria back to 19 years old. And and the thing that I love most about all this is Victoria understands this. She 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 makes this decision understanding the implications of it. Like she she is a very observant, aware person and and is totally aware of of the road that she's putting herself on with this. Yeah, yeah. Um I think I think her decision is is understandable and shows some self-awareness here. So now she also recalls her trigger event, getting trounced in basketball, her family watching their mundane daughter with disappointment and boredom. And when the girl um, fouls her and calls her overrated, she triggers. And I like that it's it's more to do with her being called overrated than being being physically hit, is, is my right. impression. Right. Um, and, and certainly speaks to why part of her power is this field of, of awesomeness. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you think back in Worm, we were told the basics of this trigger event, right? They said, like, she was at a basketball game, she got pushed down, and she triggered. And our characters, and us, kind of, because we're in the point of view of our characters, kind of, like, laughed that off. as like, oh, I'm sorry, you got pushed down at a basketball game. I got shoved into tampon locker hell. Um, and, and, like, the idea of the the sons and daughters of capes triggers being much less traumatic was like a, a a thing that was discussed many times throughout the story but here we do kind of see that well yes this is not like being shoved into a tampon locker level this trigger event for victoria still was pretty traumatic right there's a lot of complex emotional trauma going on that that triggers this event for her and it's very easy to write this off when you're coming from a person who naturally triggered as a first generation. But when we see inside her head, this is, this is one of the keys of, of her issues is this feeling of, uh, like that her, her family does not like her, does not, um, feel like she's part of it because she doesn't have these powers, this pressure to be a cape. Like that's a very traumatic thing for a kid. Yeah, it's, um, I think there's a lot of triggers in, in this, in the story that are a long time in coming. And this is certainly one of them because it's not just like, oh, you got fouled at a basketball game. It's like, no, there was this culmination of years of, of wanting to fit in with your awesome Kate family and being desperate to. And 
you know, unlike a kid trying to join the family business, you can't join the cape family business unless you're a cape. Yeah. So there's this this sense of like complete misfit and hopelessness. And it's the getting fouled is just the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm also reminded of Tattletales and, and Tarion's trigger events because both of those were were explicitly described as being like the trigger happened on one of many nights of the person just like being in torment over something. Like it wasn't a it wasn't a tampon locker, it wasn't a car accident. It was something bad happened and then people started treating them horribly and then at a certain point it was just too much and and it, and it snapped and that's a perfectly uh legitimate w- way of acquiring uh some pretty bad you know trauma and some pretty bad problems i think yeah i agree yeah so she, yeah she's been pushing down her emotions lately which we kind of figured she admits this to, to, to yamada and she says um you know, I don't want to be emotionless, but smarter about it. The idea I keep coming back to is I want to be a warrior monk. A warrior monk? Just centered when it counts, I guess. Why the warrior part? Do you envision yourself fighting? I don't honestly know. It never occurred to me. <laughs> really? Never? Never? Uh... Yeah, I, I think this is this is fun, though, because it's like there's there's the there's there's the warrior side of her and there's the monk side of her. I, yeah. I think I, I think of those as being like the two sides that are struggling yeah I, I agree and i think that that this is i love that victoria's desire to be emotionless um ties back to this moment when amy literally removed her emotions and it allowed her to make a clear rational decision and 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 she keeps returning to this moment because like it's probably easier it's it's easier when emotions aren't involved. It's easier to make these decisions when your emotions aren't clouding things. So so whenever she's feeling overwhelmed, she defaults back to this moment when she didn't have to worry about that. And and I think we see both the good and bad in that. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. That's interesting. I didn't make that connection myself actually. But yeah, she isn't sure what to do. Um, but she wants to do something, and she thinks she'll end up being a hero. She just kind of sees that as inevitable. Yamada tells her that she's extremely busy and won't be able to take Victoria on as a as a personal full-time patient, which is heartbreaking uh, yeah. for for Victoria. Yeah, but do you see Yamada is still like being a hero in her own way, right? She's working full-time for I think the wardens she says, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They end this conversation with Victoria asking Jessica to send somebody to talk to Amy. She's the scariest damn person in the world, Jessica, I said. I don't think that's bias. There's a chance she's going to do something bad. And she's so damn powerful that when it, when and if it happens, it's going to be so much worse than what happened to me. And it's going to affect an awful lot more people. Well, that's ominous. Yep, that's an ominous ominous ending to the main part of Dark One Daybreak. Yeah, but we also have to admit that it. she says, I don't think that's bias. It's Victoria, it's a little bias. <laughs> like, you can't, I don't think she can look at Amy without any inherent bias, but yeah, it's certainly like, I feel like we know Amy pretty well at this point. And like, it's not like she's Nilbog. Like she's, she has her problems and, and she's, she snapped once and then she kind of did her best to make amends. But you know, again, we don't know what's happened to her since gold morning, really. So who knows? So then we uh, we are now in our first interlude chapter. We meet uh, Moose Link, uh, who is 
cave name Prancer, and Harper, cave name Velvet. Uh, our point of view character is Prancer. They stop their truck at a bar near a tiny settlement. These are fun characters. We get some fun banter here. Uh, there's a fun story about a guy who wanted to run a business torture killing people. Yeah, Matt, totally. Fun banter. Yeah. Torture Yeah, I, know, I love it. Yeah. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> so they put their costumes on and they head inside. Uh, they talk to the proprietor and they get the skinny on the special rules for this particular villain bar. I really like how mundane it all is. You know, don't go on the second floor unless you're qualified. Don't make trouble. Don't bother people with your powers. Be discreet in conducting business. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like it too. And and the biggest I think connecting thread we have here is that that bar scene from really early in Worm when all the villains to get together in that one bar. And I know mm-hmm. you said you really loved that scene at the time. That kind of opened up a lot of the the wider world of the story to you. I kind of mm-hmm. like this one better. Um, it, it, this, it's funny. It has a very much of an old West feel to it, kind of like that. That's just like this is the saloon where the people hang out, and as long as you mind your business, like no one's going to get hurt. And I guess that makes sense given the circumstances. This is very much a, a place like kind of on an outpost of the the world that is is far away from the center. So it's kind of is its own kind of wild west. Yeah, I really love that comparison. I, I, I'm reminded of, you know, that they were giving guns to, to kids earlier. And if you're, you know, if you're watching a, a Western, if you're watching a genre Western movie, you wouldn't bat an eye at a 13 year old kid, you know, holding off bandits with the rifle, right? That's yeah, the yeah. trope of that genre because that's the world they live in. And that is what this world is now, basically. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the prancer looks over the current denizens of the bar. Some tinkers, some teenagers, a lone woman with a mask on the lower half of her face and intricate metal arms and leg stuff going on. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's a five special kissing friend or killing friend. Yay. Or both. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, Gorgos from the teenager group Ripcord comes over. Prancer tells him that their team is the Transporter starring Jason Statham uh, and also pot dealers. I just, I just want one show. Where you don't talk about Jason Statham. Just, no, just, no. One, just one time. I'm sorry. No. Uh, so we learned that Velvet went to prison for, for, for Prancer on Prancer's behalf or, or something like that. We don't really learn more details about this beyond the fact that he feels a lot of guilt and obligation towards her and that they're in a relationship. Yeah, this, this is a it's a very interesting relationship. I'm very I, I have no idea how these characters are going to insert themselves in the story proper. I think we kind of get an idea of it at the end of this chapter, but the, these, these, the two characters that play off each other here in very interesting ways, there's, there's a lot of history with them. Yeah. We, uh, I love, I love um, velvet in particular, the manifestation of her power, which we're going to, yeah. So, so yeah, like she has this truck, which doesn't really run, but she, she has this psychology of wanting to settle into things as Prancer describes it. Um, which also explains why she stays with this dude, Prancer, who sucks pretty bad by his own account. Um, and she has this power that is completely based around physically settling into an area and gaining control over it. Um, that, I think this is a pretty fun character power synergy. Yeah, yeah. With, uh, with dust that represents uh, the past and old things mm-hmm. and the old truck that can barely run. Um, and she wants to keep her old truck and, and he wants to get her a new one cause it's themes. Yeah. I love how she says like, 
yeah, just uh, I'm I'm okay with you repairing the truck as long as you don't tr- try ship of Theseusing it. Yeah, which of course means replacing it piece by piece until it's not the same truck anymore. Which which is just shows how can how sort of attached she really is to things being as they are, even if they're broken. Yeah, um, the truck is a metaphor for Prancer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Moose is good people though he seems like a really nice guy yeah yeah he's he's embarrassed by his name but also i loved that whole conversation about no moose it's actually like they're mean and deadly i like them yeah. a lot oh oh alaskan capes right it's it's great and and also just the fact that the the whole chapter skirts around actually making the joke that his name is moose knuckle um <laughs> which is which is a joke um, so a woman with a minim- minimalist mask, white hair, and a black dress shows up, followed by a nursery and the rest of the folks who, who Victoria fought. Our characters know some, but not all of them. Uh, people applaud the arrival of Lord of Loss. Uh, I, I think that's who that is, when, when he shows up. And Lord of Loss asks if uh, Amy's father is here. Oh, what's his name again? I forgot. I, remember. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, so... so uh, nursery is saying they're anxious out there. They feel powerless. The idea was to pick someone controversial and take them out of the picture, make them the topic of debate. Is vigilante justice right or wrong? In this case, where the wrong isn't ter- isn't so terribly wrong, well, that was their idea. I do think she did something horrible. That's why I agreed to do the job. Uh, so here's some strong evidence that these guys uh, were uh, also talked through the whole mission by our favorite information broker on their earpieces. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's it's very it's very interesting. I I love like this idea, like the idea that well, um, is vigilante justice right or wrong? What if it's wrong for the right reasons? Which is something yeah. that sounds very familiar uh, to everyone that's read the previous book um, and. And like we're, we're, you you could see, yeah, you can actually absolutely see Tattletale um, manipulating things, like like trying to play off of this central idea and manipulating things, um, and 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 in her defense, probably in an effort to do overall good. Yeah, the question I have at this point, you know, based on what we know at this point, is is Tattletale masterminding this, or is Tattletale? you know, subcontracted just like these guys. And she's right. just the one, you know, the, uh, the ops person. It's a good um, question. And, uh, it's, I'm fascinated to, to find out. So apparently, uh, also nursery isn't a parahuman. Her baby is the parahuman. Um, <laughs> I actually missed this the first time that I read it, where I think the implication is that after nursery walks away, velvet kind of undercuts this and is like, she's just crazy. <laughs> um, I didn't. I, I'm not sure if I'm parsing that right. Actually, I, yeah, I, I wasn't sure how to read. I, I know what you're talking about. I wasn't sure how to read that either. I, so I didn't like. She pats her stomach, right? So like, uh-huh. she the baby's inside her, but there's a lot of strong indications that when she's in magic nursery realm, the baby was not. The baby was external to her stomach. I think. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just how the. Her, the baby or her power work i i kind of hope yeah. it's i kind of hope that nursery's right and and velvet is not that she has no powers it's just the baby because i think that's really really interesting 
but yeah, I, don't know. I, I, I agree. That would be, that would be a very interesting twist and something we, we have not seen before. Um, although it's also completely plausible that nursery miscarried and her mind snapped and she insists that she's pregnant and that her baby is the perihuman. Um, but yeah. actually that's not the case. I, I, it'll be, it'll be heartbreaking either way. I'm sure. I, yep. That's one thing. It's one thing we know that that's going to be the truth. Yeah. <laughs> we can count on it. So uh biter comes in. Yay. Yay. Where's Rachel? I don't know. So Brant Prancer starts gathering people together, suggesting that the villains organize. Biter tells him that this has already kind of started. Um, but, but he says, no, some other groups, some small, some large, they're banding together a mutual peace, forming a set of rules and expectations that aren't unwritten that we actually discuss and work out. And, uh, and Prancer kind of wraps up this arc by saying that he, uh, he kind of has something in mind for something bigger than that. Uh-oh. And uh, that is all we've got for you this yeah. week on We've Got Ward. Remember that we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is more dinner nursery. Um <laughs> I am going to do a live tweet of arc two. <laughs> I forgot the number there for a second. Um, it's not like because this episode is a day late. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, this episode is coming out on a Thursday. Um, the live tweet will be on Friday instead. Um, I will be, uh, I think it's going to be at noon. I'll be tweeting the time for sure. Um, my Friday schedule is a little bit different than my Thursday. So I just want to make sure I have time for all of it because I didn't last week and got yelled at for it. Sorry. That, that's right. <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and anywhere podcasts are sold. Wait, podcasts cost money? What? Oh, oh yes. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week on our other feeds, we've got another episode of the Kryptonian Collection. We had uh, film critic Dee Dee Crimmins come on to discuss and argue in favor of Night of the Living Dead before our council. That was a, a pretty good episode. And then, of course, we also have new episodes of, of Phantom Zoned and... and my new show with my wife, Vout of You, up as well. So give them a try. Also, Matt, I think there's a higher than 0% chance that so-called writers will be returning sometime soon. That's right. I am allegedly going to be getting internet back uh, <gasps> pr pretty soon. That was me knocking on wood. <laughs> um, and if that happens, then I'll be resuming so-called writers because I'll be able to record. And, uh, that's great. And I, and I have another show that I've been working on in the background. Um, I'm not sure when exactly I'll actually be launching that, but, um, it'll be fun. We've got tons of ideas here, guys. Um, listen to them all, share them. And, uh, the ones that are popular enough, we will continue to do. We're excited. 2018 yeah. is going to be a great year. Yes, it is. Uh, and if you like any of these shows and want to support them, consider do donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Films. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new Planeteers, Esteban, Paul, and Kai at the $1 level, all of those, and Satya at the $2 level. Also, speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildlow's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. And if you can't afford to pledge right now, that's okay. You can like show up at your family barbecue and surprise your poor daughter 
with this very traumatic podcast, I'm sure that will go over great. Or you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. You can be like the TJG who gives us five stars and says, I read Worm in the past but had recommended it to a friend. He in turn directed me to the podcast. Y'all's insights have inflamed the itch to reread it. So once again, well done on an excellent podcast. Inflamed like a fire axe. Matt, because, see, that's a joke, because one time I didn't know what a fire means. <laughs> Thanks so much, TJ. I'm really glad you're enjoying the show, and I, and I hope you're following along with Ward, or, uh, or well, you won't hear this. <laughs> All right, uh, that's it for the show this week. Next week, Scott and I continue to play catch-up to the release schedule of Ward and are covering all of Arc 2 Flare. Like a good case of herpes, Matt, I suspect trouble in the megacity will flare up at the worst possible time, and Victoria will be in the middle of it. Also, I do suspect that we're finally going to meet at least some of our friends from that Parahumans Online chat. Well, we'll find out next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.